Uh, Jason Snell, it is, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back. Uh, baseball. I don't know when we were on fairly recently at the end of last year, but you know, baseball, we got baseball. It's the, you know, it's March. I know this. I got good news for talk show listeners. The next two hours, it's all about keyboards and baseball. (laughs) How the Giants movies in there too. How the Giants looking this year? Uh, the Giants are looking, you know, hope springs eternal. It's a funny thing. Um, they had, uh, they almost lost a hundred games last year, although they were projected to win like 80 or 85. So it was just a cascade of disasters. Um, starting with Madison Bumgarner taking a ride on a, on a motorbike and, and separating his shoulder. But, uh, they were projected to bounce back and then they made a couple of moves in the off season, um, trying to stay under, the salary tax this year, which um, I think is really encouraging because it means they actually intend to spend money next year, yeah. uh, which is why you'd want to stay under for this year. And, you know, they they are in true, I think, Moneyball fashion. They're trying to find a, a hole in the market where people are undervalued. And in, and in typical Giants fashion, it's uh, people in their early 30s who are considered over the hill by baseball standards. So any offseason where you get the definitive player of two different franchises traded to you by those franchises, it's got to be a pretty good offseason. So Evan Longoria yeah. and Andrew McCutcheon. Um, so, you know, they might be okay. I'm hoping that they're entertaining. The problem last year was not that they were losers. It was just they were terrible. Like, they were unwatchable yeah. to the point where in June I just I, – I actually said to myself, I got to pick another team. I got to, like, pick a team t- whose games I can put on the TV – to see good baseball because the Giants weren't providing it. And so in the middle of June, I just picked the Astros because they were having a really good year. And I, I was on that bandwagon early, and I rode it all the way to the end. So that was pretty sweet. Uh, that sounds pretty good. Um, I am very happy. Yankees ha- going to be okay? Yeah, Are they going to hit any home runs this year? I don't know. I hope I hope so. <laughs> you know that the leading home run hitter in the preseason isn't even a guy you've heard of. It's this kid Andihar. <laughs> Hit two and one. He's yeah, hit but, like five and three games or something. That's crazy. But pre pre games that don't count. I mean, like if yeah. you're a pitcher in spring training, they're not even trying to get guys out. They're just like, let me try this pitch. Hmm, yeah. I'll try that one again. And it's like the games are there to, yeah. I guess you know, provide some structure and sell some tickets because of course spring training is a big money maker for all yeah. the teams. But yeah, and my mom gets excited. My mom loves uh, football, loves the NFL, and she gets excited every time there's uh, preseason football games are on. She's like, oh, did you see this? And did you see that? And it's like I don't. I mean, I don't care that much about football, but I really don't care about football games that don't count that are largely played by people who are not going to be on the team. It's like I literally could not care uh, about that if I tried. And spring training baseball is a little bit better than that because I like baseball more, but it's also kind of not important. It's uh, just I'm glad it's there and they're getting they're stretching everything out and getting ready to to work hard in April. Uh, I think I think that I don't want I won't go long with baseball. But I do think that the next one of the next levels of Moneyball is sort of going back old school, where you 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 maybe look at the numbers first, but then you look at the type of player, and you're not just looking at numbers. And I look at the Giants, and I see signing guys like McCutcheon and Longoria. It's more than just that they're sort of thirty, young thirty-ish, past their prime, but franchise players from before these are guys who like led the team led the communities you know i mean like these are guys Mm -hmm. who 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 are really well known for you know doing everything you would want a a, a athletic role model to do you know yeah i i think what people misunderstand about moneyball is like when moneyball was written by michael lewis it's a great book um 
they they said, oh, okay, Moneyball is look for people with good on base percentages, right. <laughs> and then everybody did that. And and these days, everybody, every front office in baseball is full of mostly Ivy League trained people with kind of economics degrees who are into the stats and all of that. But Moneyball was never about that. Moneyball was always about if you're the Oakland A's and you don't have money. How do you find an edge, any edge? And I think what we what we're in this world where the the stats guys really do reign supreme, and it's been shown that what they do works. If you look at the Cubs and the Astros, it's totally what works. Well, it doesn't mean that there aren't still things that are undervalued out there. And knowing that a baseball player hits its peak on average at twenty eight years old. Um, yeah, you can make an argument, a contrarian argument, like maybe uh, getting picking up a guy who's 32 or 31. No, he's yes, he's on the downward slide, but uh, maybe everybody else is not giving him enough credit. And that's so I think that's exciting that, you know, the inta- things that we consider intangible, like, oh, you know, is he a good clubhouse guy? Things like that, that you always roll your eyes about. You know, there probably is truth to that because these are people. They aren't numbers. And... Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things is if everybody's got the numbers and all the smart math guys are cranking out all the numbers, you're going to get your edge somewhere else. Because like if, if literally like the Astros math is not better than the Cubs math. Right. I mean, right. maybe they have some techniques that they're using, but like that battle is kind of over. Everybody's everybody's being smart about stats. So you're you're going to find an angle somewhere else. Yeah. Did you see the 538 piece uh, last week? I forgot to, I can't believe I didn't link to this on Daring Fireball, but they, uh, uh, this argument about the, have the baseballs been juiced since midway through 2015? Um, yeah. And they took them to some place at uh, like Caltech or some university with like a super high res CT scan. And the answer is yes. <laughs> The, the, yeah, the the, the the rubber uh that's around the core is yeah. like a different material or something yeah. and that that's enough yeah. yeah yeah it's enough that the the math says it would give it maybe like i forget like an extra six inches and then there's another factor because of the weight the weight is it's like a tenth of an ounce lighter and that that combined with the material change would give you like the percentage increase in home runs we've seen since 2015 I'm going to bring it around to something that, and for people who haven't skipped to the next chapter, to to something related to Apple, which is manufacturing. It shows you that at volume or when you've got very specific things that you have to do, like at at very small microscopic almost levels of materials, you can make a change. Because I don't think this is a conspiracy. I don't think Major League Baseball was like, let's change the baseball to juice it. Like literally, it's probably like a supplier changed what their rubber formula was. And that happens to be the rubber that was in a new batch that came to the factory in Guatemala or, or wherever it is, somewhere in Central America where they make these. And that's what they used. And they have a whole big truck of it, <laughs> and it completely changed the game of baseball. And it's amazing to think of a multi-billion dollar, hundreds of billions of dollar industry that gets changed by something that small. But, you know, it could be, you know, the a- Apple stuff, it's the same way, whether it's the silicone on the bottom of a HomePod or whether it's um, a, a, compo- a tiny component in an iPhone, like a little thing in manufacturing can make a huge difference in the end product, even though on its own, it's, it's almost meaningless or it seems meaningless. Yeah. Um, but it is very consistent though. It's like all the baseballs after midway through that season and none of the baseballs from before it, you know, there's a definite difference. Um, They're all the same, right? Like it's, it's a totally 
a turnkey kind of process, right? right. It's just that one of the inputs changed uh, an imperceptible amount, right. and it wasn't for you know a year or more until people realized quite what had what had happened. And I don't know how you prevent that. Like if you're baseball and you're and you're doing like gas chromatographs of the elements of a baseball every week, and you see that it's changed. I mean. They can't stop making baseballs. What no. I mean, what do they do? I don't know, even know if there is something to solve that problem. <laughs> uh, anyway, a wee bit of follow-up. All right, totally new topic. I'm telling you this yeah. is about as different as a topic as you're going to get from baseball manufacturing. As Marco was on my show last time, we had a uh, – went a little long, I guess. We covered a lot of topics. Um, and at one point, we were talking about making coffee, and it came up briefly uh, – you know about uh, Marco had switched from a uh, oven, a stovetop kettle to an electric kettle, and I, I proudly said I still like I, I just I still like stovetop kettle. I'll tell you what, our friends in Europe, our listeners in Europe, <laughs> have some very strong feelings about whether or not every single kitchen should have an electric kettle. Well, their electricity is better than ours, though. Yeah, they can boil water in an electric kettle twice as fast as we can because right? our electric they've, is so weak. They've got 240 volts, and we've we've got one, 120. Uh, ah. It's sometimes you know you're you're stepping into a minefield. Uh, I <laughs> later on on this show I want to talk a little bit about the uh, NRA TV channel on Apple TV. I'm I'm anticipating. I'm I'm approaching it with eggshells. I'm approaching. I'm anticipating that people might have strong feelings. Really <sighs> had no no <laughs> no idea that <laughs> my disregard for electric kettles was going to anger <laughs> so many listeners. Oh my God! And then the people saying that that uh, the espresso people. Oh my God! Don't even get me started on them. I mean, God bless you. I, I I don't know. I feel like there's some kind of combination between their having a very strong preference for espresso and their drinking too much espresso, <laughs> and thereby being easily angered. <laughs> but I'll tell you what: there are some people who feel that uh, anything other than espresso is not really good coffee, and that. Huh. Nothing made in North America is good espresso. So, my apologies. <laughs> wow, I I don't drink coffee. I am a tea drinker. So I know that. I, I, so I owned so I own two electric kettles, <laughs> but but I don't understand. I'm just completely neutral on the coffee thing. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't understand it. So it, it, that's good. It's a good place to be. <laughs> um. Anyway. Uh, I wanted to say this. There's two apps. Uh, Scripted Bugger 7 just shipped the other day. That's from Late Night Software, longtime developer Mark Aldrit. Um, and then within the last year, BB Edit 12 shipped from Barebone Software um, uh, and uh, co-founded by Rich Siegel and Patrick Woolsey. I used to, used to work for those guys. Um, and I still use those apps all the time. I can't say I use Script Debugger every day because I don't write Apple scripts or edit Apple scripts every day. But every time that I have either created a new Apple script or futzed with an old one, for as long as I can remember, it's been with Script Debugger because um, it's just a fantastic app. And it's so much better than the Apple's built-in script editor. And and the name of the app is <laughs> is exactly why it's better. Yeah, yeah, because it has actual debugging tools. I used Script Debugger for a long time when I was doing some complicated scripts when I was at IDG, and then at some point I stopped working on the scripts, and they came out with a new version, and I didn't update. And that was about when the script editor got better, 
And I just went back to the script editor right. because I thought, well, I don't really need the heavy lifting stuff. But Script Debugger 7 came out and he pointed out that like it's you can use it for free like bb edit like there's a free tier right. where you can just use it and even at the free level it's way better than the script editor yep. and it had its uh the anticipated effect i think what what he's hoping he gets out of it which is that um i used it for like 10 minutes and i was like oh right and i just bought it because <laughs> it's so much better that i just i never want to bother and also i don't have any faith that the script editor is being updated by apple at all ever again so um i'd rather have a, a an app from somebody who actually cares about it i it you know what how uh, script the apple script stuff within apple is uh, i would love to get the full story someday because it on the one hand you want to say boy this feels like something that might be on the way out and it, it never seemed to get anywhere near. even when it was getting some love it was never getting as much love as like you and i and and other serious you know to for lack of a better term i sometimes cringe using it but mac power users would like mm -hmm. but it was but then it seemingly took a turn for the worse last year and sal a uh, longtime leader of the automation team you know, within Apple left, doesn't seem like it was on good terms. Um, and, and like you said, like script editor doesn't seem like it's getting a lot of updates. Uh, only thing I can remember it getting in recent years was when they updated it to support the JavaScript, um, for automation, which is right. using JavaScript as the language to control the same underlying automation stuff that Apple script drives. But then the fact that that JavaScript for automation exists at all is sort of proof that there is engineering going on there. Yeah, it's, it's a weird situation. I'm, I'm actually okay with the idea that Apple, um, you know, if Apple says, look, Apple script was a great idea, but it, it it's old and um, it's sort of not how people work today and we want to replace it with something better, I would go along with that. I just am not entirely uh, convinced. I'm not at all convinced that we want to replace it with something better is a thing that exists. Yeah. And that that's the thing is like, I'm okay with Apple throwing away Apple script. I really am. As long as they replace it with some great, preferably cross-platform iOS and macOS yeah. automation system that that is modern and, and is a, you know, 2018 take on what uh, inter-app communication and control and system scripting should be. But they've shown, um, I mean, short of, uh, other than buying workflow, which we've known nothing about other than that they keep working on right. the workflow iOS app, that's the closest sign we've had in a long time that Apple has any interest in, like, user automation. So, right. uh, you know, I, I'm willing to say, okay, fine, Apple Script had a good run and it's over, but I'm going to hold on to it, uh, like, for dear life until Apple has an alternative and and i i wouldn't put money down on that i wouldn't either but then there's things like like the apple notes app um which was rewritten recently i don't know maybe not rewritten from scratch but it's felt like when they switched to icloud uh uh, uh cloud kit for the syncing uh instead of the goofy imap imap uh, -uh. <laughs> That it felt like a new app. I don't know, but I, I was I dragged it onto the script debugger to see if it has a dictionary, and I was half expecting a this app isn't scriptable. Um, and it said no, low. It has a very rich scripting dic dictionary, more than just the mm -hmm. basics. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe that script that note scripting dictionary has been there for a long time, and I just never knew it because I didn't trust notes because of the IMAP syncing never worked. But uh, I don't know. And then there's other weird recent, not weird, but. 
things that you wouldn't think would happen if Apple really didn't have any kind of uh, some somewhere within the company st- some support for it, like uh, AppleScript Objective C, which is this bridge right. between AppleScript and pretty much the full Cocoa UI library. Um, I feel like that might be uh, uh, an artifact of there being that scripting group that has been since disbanded that Sal right. Segoian was on, right. um, saying, like, how do we keep our automation stuff relevant and finding a way to kind of just pass Objective-C stuff on? But right. it, it did totally make it like you, Sal has some demos that are just mind blowing of things you can do with with what you think of as sort of like user automation. But it's way beyond AppleScript where there's right. like, you know, there's a C root routine that does this and right. you could do it in apple script but be complicated and you just call the c routine that just does it it's amazing right. right so i i think when you said like within parts of apple that is the truth like i have heard that there are like the group that my understanding is the group that bought workflow is not the group that laid off sal right, right. those are different parts of apple and that suggests different attitudes toward user automation at apple right i don't know yeah and that's you know and god bless workflow I, I've looked into it, you know, I, I've, I've made, you know, I think you have to, I always think you have to make something you got to do like a little bit beyond yeah. a hello world. You got to do something that's vaguely useful to you. And I get it. And I see why uh, people are enthusiastic, but it's, and it's amazing that it came from a third party and wasn't something built into the system and as, as good as it is, but it really needs to be at the system level. And that's, that's the thing yep. that I, that, that this, my hunch is that this just hasn't, it hasn't percolated to the level where like uh, executives are going to have a meeting where it's like, we have to figure out an actual, we're going to, we're not leaving this, this room until we have an actual strategy that addresses cross-platform automation, whether it's actually scripting or some other form, but automation, some kind of way that users can automate mm-hmm. tasks and like the photos app on iPad can be automated the same way as photos on Mac. We're not leaving this room until we have a solution. You know that that solution is not going to be to bring Apple script and OSA scripting to iOS. Right. Right. And I think you, when you look at what um, Omni Group is doing, and Sal Zemillion mm-hmm. is actually doing some work with them, you know that that's my hope is that something like Workflow and or something like what Omni is doing, where they have a JavaScript scripting engine that's in their Mac products and their iOS products, and you can write automation and it's cross-platform for their apps. And I think they're placing a bet in part on the fact that they their users will will care, and so they're going to build it because they know Apple is not going to just hand them something. But I think they also are hoping that Apple will look at that and go, oh, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe that's what we should use. But, you know, people have been doing X callback URL and stuff like that on iOS, passing URLs back and forth for many years now. And at no point did Apple really step up and say, let's make this official. (laughs) It just, they just, that's not, that hasn't happened. Yeah. Uh, there was a heyday in the early nineties and I don't think it's a coincidence, you know, where, when I bring this back to script debugger and BB edit, there was a heyday when like the whole developer community kind of got when OSA scripting and, and Apple script were announced and developers got behind them and it just became like, I don't know what's the term, just the de facto, it, you, you're not really a good Mac app if you don't have a good scripting dictionary and good support. And there were just, and, and the, the, the thing that people who never got into it and, and never really got into Apple scripting 
at all or don't see it now because the apps they used aren't scriptable was there really was something to the fact where sometimes, yes, that I have a whole bunch of scripts that run within BB edit and just do things within BB edit. But when all of your apps are using the same automation system, you, you can come up with things where you're like manipulating text and, Oh, just send it over to BB edit and BB edit can do the uh, sort the lines and uh, remove duplicates and, then just send it back to wherever I was, whatever app that was, and then finish up doing something there and then go to another app and make a graph out of it. You know, that you'd have yeah. one thing you'd run, press one button, and it would involve two, three, four apps in a process that you could then reuse over and over and over again. And I'll bet that, that your the... IDG stuff involved, you know, mm -hmm. probably what, a word processor, Quark Express... Yep. It was it, it was the stuff that I was doing was a lot of it was like data that was in FileMaker yeah. going out to like Eudora for email or generating text files or yeah or doing stuff in processing text inside of BB Edit right. in order to export to the web or to Quark Express all of yeah. those things happened and that that's the magic right is when right. you're it's not just like I can script this app but it's like I can have this app do this thing and tell this other app and you're you're right. attaching apps that don't know they don't need to know that they exist right. as long you write the stuff that glues them together and it was uh, people don't also remember from the 90s for those who weren't around then that you know the max survival in the 90s was a, a lot of it was about being in very specific industries like publishing and like the the reason the mac held on when it was kind of fading away from a lot of places was those industries needed automation and the mac had the best automation right. And and like Sal came the first time I ever saw Sal Segoian, he was presenting a thing where he was automating um, a newspaper layout of a classified ad section based yep. on stuff that was in a database. And he ran the script. It's like, oh my god, what did I just see? The whole page laid itself out based on the database. <laughs> and, and like that, that is one of the reasons the Mac survived. And even though maybe end users didn't deal with it, like that stuff being there, there's a reason that 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 stuff. Uh, got adopted by everybody is because right. they also wanted to sell their software into those big accounts right. and they knew that that was where the Mac was strong and that was like the business play for the Mac. Right. And and it was great on both ends. Like the classified ads thing is is like no joke because I remember we had something like that at the, the student newspaper at Drexel. Like I don't know how we would have done the classifieds without it. And it was great because if you were the person responsible for getting the actual classifieds into Quark Express and output onto paper so that they're ready to go to press it was a great system because you could just hit a button and it would, you know, there'd be very little manual stuff involved, but it was also great from the perspective of whoever was entering the classifieds because you could enter them in a FileMaker database with a real human interface. That was just right. like everything else on the Mac where it's like, here's the person's name. Here's their contact information. Here's the text of their ad. Here's a pull down menu with the sections of the classified and you could just choop, choop, choop. And then it's in the system with a human interface and you didn't have to teach them how to use it. You would just teach them like, here's, here's what you open when you want to enter a classified ad, open this. And then you see, and then they'd be like, Oh, okay, I get it. Um, it so it was a great interface on both ends. 
yeah so that's the that's the reason i think that a lot of this stuff back in the day was was like that and and today you know it it, it still hangs on and lots of apps have it and there are a bunch of good apps like um i've been using keyboard maestro a lot more yes and one of the nice things one thing nice things about keyboard maestro is there are a lot of these apps that aren't scriptable because that's become much less of a thing than it used to be and keyboard maestro just doesn't care you can just tell it open this window and click on this button and you can even say like find the button with this text on it wherever it mm-hmm. is and just click on it and it's like it's weird it's like a ghost is using my computer but yep. it's amazing so I, I use that all the time to because in the end it's all about saving time it's not about earning style points the style points are cool but in the end right. if i can build something in 20 minutes and it saves me four minutes every week that's going to pay off it doesn't take very long for that to pay off and all i have to do is click once and it, i'm done with whatever task i'm doing it's pretty great <laughs> I'm definitely afraid I'm about to repeat a story from last week's show, but I have podcast amnesia and don't remember if I told it, but I, I just recently made a keyboard maestro macro, um, for a while now I have, I have, I've got a bunch of custom system wide services that I've written. Um, you know, the things where you can just go to the the app, the apps menu, like the Safari menu, go down to services and you apply service and they almost all manipulate text. Um, like one of my favorites is one I just call Google Lucky, and I can type any string I want, like uh, Daring Fireball iPhone 10 review, select it, and then invoke that service, and the service will just return the first result from a Google search for those terms because I'm so confident that the first that that w- I can make terms that will give me the first answer, and it just replaces hmm. those terms with the URL. I've used it for years. It is invaluable because I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to go. I don't leave the app I'm writing in. I just write those terms, run the service. I've got a bunch of these services, too many that I could make up unique shortcuts, keyboard shortcuts for all of them. And so what I've thought about for years is, is there a way I can write like an Apple script or something that would just show me all the services that are available and then I could invoke that. And then I'd have this thing that I could like arrow down to the one I want or whatever. Um, and it, there's, I don't think there's a good way to do it, at least, you know, just using simple Apple script or whatever. And then it just dawned on me, like a light bulb went off after years of vaguely wanting this, that I could write a keyboard my, my, maestro macro that just opened the, the services menu and arrowed over to it. And then once that menu is open, you can just use the keys on your keyboard to select menu items by the first name of the thing. Like, so if there's one called title case, I can just type a T and title case will be selected and I can hit return. Hmm. So, uh, I just type now I just type shift command X that's X because it's like a superpower and there's no other like system wide modifiers for cut. So I type shift command X, which is very easy with my left hand and wherever I am, the services menu opens. So I don't need like my own interface. It just opens the the services menu. Like a, like you said, like a ghost has just opened the services menu for me. And the thing, the thing that I had, I've been using keyboard maestro for years and years. And the thing that, that I kind of, I didn't like get away from it, but I stopped adding new stuff in it. And there are things that you can do in keyboard maestro now on a modern Mac that are so fast compared to the way they used to be. Like it doesn't, when you run this macro, it doesn't look like a menu's opening and then a submenu's opening and then the submenu gets the input focus. It just happens in an instant. It just, in, it just the pops whole, open. Right. Yeah, I have I have that with um, NiceCast, which uh, Paul Kafasis and Rogue Amoeba just retired. It's old, and it's yeah, and I know why they're retiring it. It's a live streaming app, um, and, and it needs a refresh, which is why they're retiring it. Well, it's got it's like a, old. It's a thirty-two yeah, I mean, bit and app. It was, 
Yeah, and it was conceived in a, in an era that yeah. no longer exists and all that. But the the point is that it's got the kind of old style like drawer with radio button kind of interface that yeah, was in yeah. vogue early on. Um, and I my keyboard maestro stuff for that is amazing because it's like it's opening windows and doing keyboard shortcuts and clicking on buttons and then closing those windows again. And it happens so fast. I'm not sitting there like watching it open and mouse over and click or anything. It's just like boop it, and it's done. So I, you know, it might as well be invisible, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. And um, I think the one I talked about last week on the show, I'm pretty sure was the one I've written recently for TweetBot. I think I talked about this, but the idea is whenever I respond from an at Daring Fireball mention, I want to respond from at Gruber. I feel like mm. me, I'm, me on Twitter is at Gruber and at Daring right. Fireball is the, the voice of the publication, which, you know, it's one person website so I, I it's a thing in my head i don't know if anybody else would notice but I, but I, I i long wanted a uh I, I thought about asking uh the guys at Tapbots to add a feature so that i could say from this account always reply from that account and i felt guilty i could never bring myself to ask because it felt like i was asking them to make a feature for john gruber and nobody else would want it who else would has this you know probably like three people who want this feature um and I realized I could fake it in the keyboard maestro and just have keyboard maestro when te- only when Tweetbot is is foremost. Listen for Command R, um, and then send um, Tweetbot another Command R, which keyboard maestro is smart enough not to get into an infinite loop and get it actually passes it on, and then that opens the reply window, and then just go up to the avatar and open the menu, which lets you switch accounts, hit down arrow once to get to the top one, which is always at Gruber, hit return. And then every reply I hit with the command R shortcut is already at at Gruber. And it happened. Mm. The thing is, it happened so fast. I don't even see any kind of flicker. It just, it, it just happens. I mean, there is flicker if you look for it, but it's so fast that it, it doesn't even annoy me. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty well known that I'm easily annoyed. It's great. It's uh yeah. So there's there's. I think our point here is that automation, user automation, yeah. is good, and there are good tools out there on the Mac and 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 on iOS with workflow. Yeah. But I do wish that Apple looked at at this and said, you know what, we could give everybody a leg up by doing yeah. some work behind the scenes to support yeah. user automation. Maybe they don't yeah. need to write their own thing or anything, but like right. do some groundwork to make it easier. Yeah. Um, like the fact that there are those guys who want to want to do a podcast URL, like so that if you can click on a link anywhere, it just opens your podcast app and subscribes you to that podcast. Yep. But the thing is right there, like everybody already did that. They did that with a podcast colon slash slash URL and all the podcast apps supported that. And then Apple uh, came in and said, no, you can't do that because the podcast app supports that. And iOS has no facility to take a, a, a URL and say, oh, lots of apps can open this URL. Which one would you like to open? It just, it's even basic stuff like that, that they just have not prioritized. So, you know, that's what I would love to see is Apple to say, uh, not goodbye keyboard maestro and goodbye workflow. We're going to build our own thing that you can only use, but just like make... I think it makes the lives of people who are doing stuff like what we're doing a little bit better yep. if Apple is a, an active participant instead of just kind of not paying attention. Yeah. And the one thing, know. one last point on that, and that whenever I get, I get, sometimes I get depressed, like I said a couple of minutes ago, because I feel like our Apple's heart isn't in it. And then that thing like Keyboard Maestro and my renewed recent interest in it has reminded me that a lot of what Keyboard Maestro does is, or maybe almost everything that it does is through accessibility APIs. 
um, like back in the old days when Keyboard Maestro first came out, uh, and it wasn't from Peter Lewis and Stairway Software. I think it was the developer's name was Michael Camprath. Do you remember that? Mm-mm. I don't know. I forget who it was, but um, like in the because Keyboard Maestro is another one that, that dates back to classic Mac OS and the nineties, maybe even the eighties. I don't know, but certainly the nineties. Um, and in those days it was, <laughs> I think it did what it did through, let's call it nefarious means. Uh, mm. whereas today's keyboard maestro, uh, you have to, you, it, it's almost useless if you don't grant it, you know, accessibility privileges, which you have to grant an app with accessibility privileges to prevent an app from abusing them to do things you wouldn't want it to do. But then once you grant an app, those privileges, um, it makes use of these things through, you know, APIs that are there for accessibility reasons, like, you know, find, like you said, like finding a button with a certain name and stuff like that. And so the fact that Apple, you knew, I, I know that Apple is serious about its commitment to accessibility and all the things they do to keep their software uh, and the, the APIs that third-party developers use to make it as easy as possible to, to have accessible apps. I think, you know, I think Keyboard Meister is sort of proof that they can also double as means of automation. Yeah, that's a great twofer. If, if, as long as that's possible and if there's more down that path, I think that's great because I, none of us really questions Apple's commitment to accessibility. It's, yeah. it, that one, that one is clear. Yeah. Um, anyway, let me take a break here. Oh, I, I, here's what I want to say before I take the break. Scratch that. I'm not taking a break. I just wanted to say I, I, the, that vague feeling in my head that I've been using script debugger since forever got me to open the about box and see what the copyright date is. And <laughs> copyright date is 19. This is for a brand new app. that just came out two days ago. Copyright 1993 to 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just to double check that my memory hasn't gone too far that I have been using BB edit longer than script debugger. I checked the BB edit about box and it was copyright 1992 to 2018. Both apps look as good as the day they were they were born and are, remain as relevant as ever, which is um, makes me just makes me happy. Yep, me too. All right, my thanks to dun, 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 away away makes a really really terrific uh, luggage. Uh, they use high quality materials and they offer a much lower price compared to other brands of comparable quality by cutting out the middleman. That's the secret to the internet. They cut out the middleman. They make, they use high quality materials. They have great design and they sell direct to you without retail markup. They have over 10 colors in a wide variety and they have five sizes. I love their size names because the size names don't need any description. They have the carry on the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, and the kids carry-on. <laughs> if you don't understand what those sizes mean, uh, I mean, go look at their website and I'll give you the dimensions. Uh, all of their suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate that's very lightweight, never bends, never breaks. The interior, which is really, I always talk about the wheels and how good the four, 360 four spinning wheels are. Uh, mine is like two years old. I travel a fair amount. Every time I travel, I take my away carry on. Uh, and the wheels are as good as new. I always talk about the wheels, but the inside of their suitcases is so really cleverly designed. They have a patent pending pending compression system 
which does a couple of things. But the one thing is there's like a panel that you can put like a folded shirt behind at the bottom. And then you put this thing there and then there's like belts to cinch it. And it keeps like your folded shirts together. And they come out about as unwrinkled as you could ever hope for because they're not really in another section. And then there's a nice divider and they're, they're packed down good. They have a little bag that when you're, when you first leave, when you leave house, you leave the house and everything's clean. It, it, like folds up into nothing, but then you can use this bag to put all your dirty clothes in throughout your trip. So your dirty clothes aren't getting mixed with your clean clothes. Uh, or if you come home and you've, you know, you had a pack with different, you know, long shirts, sh short sleeve shirts, cause you weren't sure what the weather's going to be like, you don't have to mix the clothes that are still clean with your dirty clothes. What a great idea. I don't know why nobody thought about that before. Everything else you want in a modern suitcase, TSA approved combination lock. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how great, you know, the the TSA combination lock is, but it's the only lock you can use. So they've got it. Um, and both sizes of the carry on can charge cell phones, tablets, e-readers, anything because they have two USB ports, um, charge up the suitcase like once or twice a year. And then you've got a suitcase that can charge your phone while you're waiting at the airport. It's, it's really useful. Lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, they will fix it. Free shipping on any away order within the contiguous U.S. Sorry, Alaska. 100-day free trial. So you can live with it, travel with it, Instagram it, whatever you want to do. Take pictures of it. And if you don't like it before 100 days are over, you can return it for a full refund with no questions asked. I don't know why you would want to return it. If you need a new case, you really ought to look at this. Uh, and they have retail stores now. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Austin, Texas, which is gearing up for South by Southwest. Anyway, I've got one. I love it. It's nearly brand new. Uh, can't believe how many years I went with a roller bag that barely rolled. I had like a dragger bag. What a what a waste of time and effort. Um, so here's the deal. You get 20 bucks off your next uh, suitcase if you go to awaytravel.com slash talk show. That's their website, awaytravel.com slash talk show. Uh, and use that promo code talk show. Know the at checkout and you will save 20 bucks off a suitcase awaytravel.com slash talk show. My thanks to them. Really good company. I have two. <laughs> I, it's amazing. I was just talking to Amy about uh, just it's it, – I wouldn't do it. I know I'm telling you I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. I'm not going to use a crappy suitcase. But uh, it's amazing how much of the stuff I use now is stuff from sponsors of the show. And oddly enough, it's more sponsors of the podcast than the website. There's stuff I use yep. that, that sponsors of the website. But for stuff like the suitcases and the mattresses <laughs> – it's it's mm -hmm. the podcast. It's crazy. And I, I got a shipment of this coffee from the last episode. Uh, it's really, really kind of nuts. Uh, what else here? So while we're going down memory road, we're talking about the old <laughs> days of the 90s. Uh, how about this? 10-year anniversary of the iPhone SDK. Literally today, March 6th, as, as we speak. Yeah. I remember yeah, I, that. I was I was there. Uh, in fact, in re reading uh, Craig Hockenberry's amazing blog post about yep. this, he linked to my live blog, which yeah. is still up <laughs> at MacWorld.com. My live blog of the iPhone SDK event, which was not not just the here's how developers will uh, write apps in this new app store that we're going to introduce, but also like the first major update to the iPhone software, which yes. didn't even have a name yet. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. And they still didn't give it a name. They they didn't really they, the name iOS didn't come until the iPad. Right. I think they called it uh, iPhone yeah. OS. They called it iPhone OS for a couple of years. Yeah. The first the first 
um, the first version of the iPod or the iPad ran um, iPhone OS, which was really right. weird. And then they gave it a name. But uh, at this point, I think they didn't even call it iPhone OS. I think it was just the iPhone software, sort right. of like how the iPod had the iPod software version, whatever. And it didn't even have a right. real name. It was right. a it was a weird time. But but ten years ago is when the when the sweet solution of you're going to write web apps for the iPhone finally kind of came down, and they said, no, 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 we're going to do an app store. Here's how it's going to work. And talk about a huge milestone. And it was a it was, I don't know why it stands out to me, but it was an interesting event because. Uh, it was Jaws. It wasn't Steve Jobs, and it wasn't Phil Schiller. It was uh, Greg Joswiak, right? Uh, or am I? Uh, I couldn't. I, am I wrong on that? Or you did the live blog? I, yeah, I should. I should look. I mean, it's Jobs. It's Jobs and Schiller. Oh, all right. and well, Scott maybe, Forstall. Oh, and maybe Scott it was Forstall. Jaws. Maybe it was Jaws who did it. No, I must be misremembering it with one of the years where Steve was was ill. It was no, one of the years when it, he was ill. It's ten. It's at ten o one a.m. on March sixth, two thousand eight. My live blog says, um, "Phil." I, I think Steve said, "Phil and Scott yeah. Forstall will do the heavy lifting yeah, today." Yeah. And so it was Phil and Scott who did yeah. all of it. Yeah, that makes I, that makes sense for the first one. That actually does make sense, especially Forstall's involvement. I I I, I loved Craig's. Uh, put I will put it in the show notes. I loved Craig's write up. And the thing that it's so mind blowing to me that there was this really active developer community uh, before the SDK came out entirely through jailbreaking and through backwards engineered uh, access to the APIs that Apple, you know, the private APIs that Apple had used to write all the apps that were on the, on the phone already. And, and it, it just, blows my mind and they, they had it working in xcode because that's the thing that i love about the apple developer community is that they don't just want to get it working it's not just enough to have a hack that works it should be as nice as possible like it wasn't just that they were writing software that ran on the iphone they were writing software that looked as good as apple software because it was using the actual native apis and you know like the lights out game the first game for iphone looked as good as any app you know any game could look on the iphone <laughs> And they had, instead of like doing it all through like uh, command line, you know, incantations and stuff, they got it working in Xcode. It, it, it was nice. I mean, not nice compared to a real proper SDK, but for nothing but jailbreak access to the APIs, it was nice. And it happened so fast. We had, you know, the C4 conference that Craig talked about where there was like a developer contest, like, a, you know, what can you hack together in 48 hours? The apps were amazing. And it was that was August, so we the phone only came out on what like June twenty ninth or something, June thirtieth. So yeah, like, something like that. Within like seven weeks, six seven weeks, there was <laughs> there were third party apps being written for this phone that had no SDK. It was amazing, and it was so terribly exciting. Everybody, I mean, everybody wanted immediately to write apps for it. There's that famous, somebody actually did find it. Uh, they actually found the MP3 of it. The, that podcast that you and Merlin and I did yep. the day after the iPhone was announced where um, we oh, all the day basically of. It came. Was the, wasn't it the day of? It was of? the day of. Was it that, that afternoon? It might yeah. have been. It was at that Macworld Expo where we basically described the app store. Like, obviously, <laughs> this is what they're going to do. It's going to be curated, this oh. whole thing. And the developers we were talking to, I mean... 
all of them wanted to write software for it. And you could see in Craig's blog post, like, the moment that they could jailbreak it and get into it and start, like, dumping out, like, what was Apple doing uh, and figuring out how Apple was writing their apps. And, like, they would not be denied. It, it's it's one of these uh, stories. You know, we think about jailbreaking today, and it's all about kind of, like, uh, piracy and trying to get around things that Apple is doing. But back in that first iPhone, it was literally, like, Apple didn't want it to let anybody in yet. And the the developers would not be denied, and, right. and they would write software without any SDK at all. They reverse engineered Apple stuff because they just they had to do it. We we all knew the moment we saw it, despite that whole web apps are a sweet sweet solution thing. We all knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And the great thing is that like a year later. <laughs> Less than a year later, it happened, which, I mean, it could have gone on way longer than that. But uh, Apple, you know, they to their credit, they prioritized and they got that thing out. I have always felt, uh, and I don't know about it at the time, and I think reading his biography and other things, it seems like maybe Jobs wasn't completely on board. I think they announced that the SDK would be coming in, like, November. Craig's probably got it in his article, but it was, you know... It was like the iPhone came out in, well, WWDC came first, right? WWDC was early June, so we didn't have the iPhone yet, right? Yeah, they they announced it right. uh, in January at Macworld Expo, but it didn't ship until the end of June. Right, so they announced the iPhone in January at Macworld Expo 2007. In early June, there was WWDC, and they had a whole WWDC, and it was all about Mac OS X, as it always had been. And then at the very end, they're like, now everybody knows, you know, later this month, we're shipping iPhone. We couldn't be more excited about it. And we've been hearing about a lot of developer interest. And we think we have a really sweet solution. And the, the room that this is the problem with that sweet solution thing. And, and it, a lot of people link to my write up about it because I called it a shit sandwich, um, you know, and people agreed. But that, that it was this there was a sucker punch element to it because it's at the end of the WWDC keynote and the room is filled not just with like the the Macworld Expo crowd of generic enthusiasts it was filled with 4000 paying developers i mac mm-hmm. developers who knew the Cocoa APIs in and out and knew that the iPhone was using Cocoa APIs so they could use the same things they knew on this amazing new device. And he says, we think we have a really sweet solution. And there's this moment where everybody's like, oh, great, I'm going to announce the gun. And then they're like, you can write web apps. Yep. <laughs> and and it was, was, it's funny because in October is when they did it. In October, right. they said th- there was actually a, a Steve Jobs, one of those Steve Jobs notes. That, that was very clearly written by him because it begins with the words, let me just say it, yeah. <laughs> colon, we want native third-party apps right. on the iPhone and we plan to have an SDK by February. And they right. ended up shipping at the very beginning of March. Right. So it obviously after WWDC and all that, they, they, got, they got the feedback that right. the sweet solution was not going to do it. <laughs> right. Well, I think what happened in hindsight was it... It, they wanted to ship as soon as they could. They knew, you know, and and uh, it's one of those things that Jobs was, I think, so good at is being able to pinpoint when a first product was ready to ship. And it was one of those things that I think he got better at as the years went on. You know, like whatever you want to say about the first iPod, the first iPod was terrific. We loved ours. We didn't buy two. Amy listened to portable music more than I did, but we bought the very first 399 iPod that had a Firewire interface, a click wheel that really spun. 
it still works. I, I, at least the last time I fired it up, it still worked. We used it for years, years and years. We I, we never bought another full-size hard drive iPod. That was the one that we used. Uh, I won one in a contest once for having written Markdown. So a couple years later, I, uh, I won a, a newer version. So I had one and she had one. Um, the next iPod that that she got was, you know, a nano with flash, uh, storage. Cause it was, it, it was great. It had five gigabytes, which was, you know, what small by future, but it was a fantastic product. And the iPhone was amazing. It, sh- it obviously shipped at the right time. The first iPhone had many deficiencies. It only had edge, didn't have three G, uh, seemed expensive compared to other phones, although it seems cheap <laughs> compared to a top-of-the-line iPhone today. So I don't know mm-hmm. if that's even a... I think that wasn't a problem with the phone, but a problem with the market's mindset on what a cell phone should cost. Um, and I, I got so much use out of it. It was amazing. I, even at edge speeds, having the web on uh, on my phone was life-changing. Would it have been worthwhile to wait until the internal APIs of what we now know as iOS were ready and stable so that they could open it up to third parties? No, I think they made the completely no. right. They, they, the only thing they could have done differently is they could have delayed the whole thing by another year to wait till everything was settled down internally to a point where they could have the the you know the sandbox and everything they wanted to have. Or they could ship it without third-party apps and suffer for a year with the criticism. But I don't think internally even Jobs ever really doubted that they wouldn't have native apps eventually. I think it was only a question only a question of how would it really yeah. would it be like the app store we have today, where there's a, literally like a million apps, or would they restrict it and and really cultivate it and only have like thousands of apps and make it like a a genuine privilege that you'd have to, you know, like getting into college or something, you'd have to be accepted and, you know, lots and lots and lots of apps would be rejected. I think there might've been debates like that, but the fact that they would have an app store period, there's no, I, I really don't think they had any doubt. Yeah. I think, I think it was very clear. I think they were smart to do it. If you think back to, to 2007, like the killer apps for the first year of the iPhone were the apps that were on the iPhone. Yeah, we would have liked third party <laughs> stuff, but like Safari on the iPhone alone was a killer app because it was and we, you know it's it's table stakes now, but like a real web browser that loaded real web pages on an iPhone was enormous and and yeah the music app was good too like the apps that were there were really good and that first year like you think oh man you couldn't load any new apps no but the apps that were there were so amazing how about having that was enough mail and safari and how about having a humane understandable interface to sms like SMS yeah, wasn't right, invented, no. but my SMS on my Nokia before I had, before my iPhone, it was just one list of messages. It wasn't sorted by people. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was crazy how bad it was. And now all of a sudden it was every bit as easy as using uh, iChat. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think that was, that gave him a year. I mean, if I had been there, hopefully somebody argued that, right. That it was like, this gives us, we, we don't even need to have a third party app answer yeah. right away because we've got the right apps on it now, including right. the browser and the browser solves so many problems right. because like there within months, there were versions of like web pages that were IM clients where you could log into AIM yeah, yeah. from inside the web page. It's like you didn't even need the app. I mean, the app would be way better, but like you could get it done just through that browser. So yeah. that that was enough of a release valve to keep them to keep them there. But I agree with you. I think that it was very clear that they wanted to do uh, real third party apps, but 
you know, I mean, the story I always tell is that when I used that iPhone in January at Macworld Expo, several of the apps, when I tapped on them, it was literally <laughs> just an image of a UI mock-up. There right. was no, like, there was no actual uh, uh, contacts or, or, or notes. Buttons. Like, all there was the, no every notes. button was just painted. It was just a ping. It was just a... <laughs> it was, no, it was, yeah, it was literally just a graphic file that opened, and you couldn't do anything, because only some of the apps were working. So, like, the iPhone was such a moving target that there's no way. They needed to they needed to learn how to write iPhone apps and then they needed to learn how to d- communicate that and how they would roll it out. But right. like, I think when the iPhone shipped, they didn't quite know how to write iPhone apps yet. They were just still figuring it out. So it was inevitable that, uh, that they would have to wait. What was great is that so many developers didn't wait until the day the SDK announced right. like Craig Hockenberry and all right. of those people that who, who just, they weren't going to wait. They were going to take it apart and examine it. And, um, that shows you how badly everybody wanted to be in the app store. Yeah. And for people who weren't around then, like day one, I remember sitting on my couch, right? Like not eight feet away from where I'm sitting right now on the day that the app store opened and downloading all of these, there's so many apps in yeah. the store on day one because the developers were so excited about doing it. You know, brand new platform. Nobody really knew how it was going to go. And there were, you know, hundreds of new apps on day one. I remember that that whole first year and I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm an introvert. I don't understand those words and those, 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 uh, you know, like uh, ITSP or whatever the hell, you know, it makes you, you take a Myers-Briggs test. personality yeah, take, test. Yeah. I, I, I've, tr- I've like looked at that several times in my adult life and I don't understand it at all. I took that test and it's like a hundred is one end of the scale and zero is the other end. And for the introvert extrovert, I got a 50. Yeah. I think that's it's like, well, I don't know what the hell. Or, I think I'm yeah. something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know. I'm at the end of the scale. <laughs> I'm at the end of the scale where you don't understand the scale. It's, <laughs> I see. Uh, but I think part of me is, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, I do a podcast and, and I've spoken in public, uh, people will come up and see me like at WWDC and I'm happy to greet them. I really am. It's a thrill. I love it. I, you know, they're like, are you John Gruber? I love it. Right. I've been there with you. We've both had it happen and it's, it's a real thrill to meet people. But like, like that whole first year with the iPhone, I didn't like it when I'd be like at the grocery market and some random stranger would be like, oh my God, is that an iPhone? I, not like I was like put off and I, I would, I would be nice. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I would say yes. And they would say, how do you like it? And I would say, I love it. It is life changing. It is, it is worth everything that you've heard about it. Um, but I just, I, I, I got it all the time. You might've gotten it less in California, but I'll tell you what, in Philadelphia, like the first year, if you had an iPhone, it was like something like people would see it. <laughs> And it's funny too. I might oh, yeah. have, I've always been a non-case user, although I'm trying a case right now with my iPhone 10. Um, but I would say at least 95% of the days, probably maybe even higher since 2007, when I first got an iPhone, the iPhone in my right front pocket has not had a case. Um, there were no iPhone cases for the first iPhone, or at least there weren't, it wasn't like anything like today because it was a new thing and nobody knew I would have bought a case for the damn thing that made it, (laughs) tried to make it look like a Nokia phone or something because, or a Blackberry something because it, it was, it was like a sensation. Um, but then on the other hand, when I'd be with people who did have iPhones, other people who did have iPhones. And so it wasn't quite so, you know, like talking to strangers, 
um, the fact that I had lights out installed on my iPhone as a jailbreak and I would be like, Oh yeah. Do you, do you have, did you get the update with the game? And they're like, what? And I, I'd show them lights <laughs> out, <laughs> which a was fun. And it was, it's a game that's super easy to understand. I'll put a link in the show notes. Cause, uh, Stephen Trotton Smith has a version that a faithful version that still is available in the app store. Um, but it's, you know, it's basically like one of those games that you and I had in the late 70s and early 80s that you could get at a toy store, like, you know, some kind of, you know, like Simon or something like electronic right. and vaguely computerized. Um, but, you know, in the way, like the skeuomorphic way that like, um, you know, that the phone looked like an actual phone and stuff like that, having a game that looked like a plastic electronic game on your iPhone was amazing. But nobody else had a game on their phone. <laughs> Or on their iPhone, at least, you know, and they had like, you know, some piece of crap snake eating game on the the Nokia <laughs> thing. So being able to show people that when, when people saw that, I was just like, oh, my God, this app store thing is going to be humongous. Because when I show people that I have a game on my phone that and I don't even like games for the most part, I'm not really a gamer, but it, it, it was so clear that it was going to be huge. Yeah, this is the, the tech industry and, and uh, you know just passing through time in general, so many things happen that you think, oh, well, we didn't really know whether yeah. that thing was going to work or not. You know, who knew that this unlikely thing would happen? The app store is not one of those things. It was very clear. Like the moment we saw the iPhone, we're like, oh yeah, that this is huge. And yeah. the moment, you know, we started thinking about the app store, it's like, no, it's going to be gigantic. And yeah. it turned out like there was no doubt. It was so clear. All the, you could argue that the entire arc of the computer industry and the software industry was leading to that moment where it's like, yep. oh, we got all the pieces now. We can just, this can happen and we can all have a, a, a computer in our pockets and buy software by tapping a couple of buttons and install it automatically wirelessly. Like the, the, all the pieces finally lined up and it was very clear from the beginning it was going to be enormous. Yeah. I, I In hindsight, I'm almost as excited thinking back to the origins of the iPhone SDK and those pre SDK jailbreak apps as I am, as I was, you know, earlier in the year, just thinking back to the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone itself, like the, the, and, I, and in 10 years, it, they kind of blur together and it's so most people, I mean, I don't know how many iPhones they sold uh, that first year, but uh, all, very few people had an iPhone without the iPhone SDK and without the app store. Right. I mean, it's a very, very small number of us percentage wise, maybe not listeners of the show, but certainly of all the people on the planet today with an iPhone who who had an iPhone in 2007 or early 2008 that before the App Store. That's a very small number. And it even yeah. for us, it kind of blurs together. It's kind of hard to remember that year. But, the, you know, like Craig bringing it back really rem it just reminded me how exciting it was. It really did sort of epitomize everything Apple stands for which is, or at least what I think it stands for, is making the best hardware for consumers, but also encouraging technically-minded users to make great things for it, right? And it goes hand-in-hand, hand, uh -huh. or with it, you know? So maybe the great thing you're making with it isn't an app, but it's you're, you're an illustrator, and all of a sudden you can do your illustrations in Adobe Illustrator, and their vector... And they can scale to these insane sizes and, you know, you can make complex illustrations that you never could have with traditional pre-computer, you know, tools. Um, you know, also all the things like that, the way that you can, you know, just be creative and make things. Um, and the iPhone really epitomized that. Uh, 
All right. Maybe I'll take another break right now. seems like a good time. seems like a nice interruption in the show. And yeah. uh, I'm going to tell you about a brand new sponsor, a company called Squarespace. Squarespace <laughs> is, a, it is a website. It's a service where you can go and you go there and you sign up. You get a free account to start with. And what you can do is you can make your own website and your website can have your own domain name. It can have your own style. They've got an amazing assortment of professionally designed templates to choose from. And these templates look great on everything from a giant 27-inch iMac all the way down to your phone. And the templates aren't just like visual styles. It's They're functional and they're layout-wise. So like, let's say what you're doing is starting a podcast where you can do it at Squarespace. And you can use the Squarespace platform to create episodes and to host audio and... Um, something like that. Or let's say you want to set up a store and you're selling t-shirts or something like that. Well, you can set up a catalog and there's online commerce all hooked up in it. Any type of like, oh, that's the sort of thing I want to do with uh, a website. Or you have a restaurant and somebody you know is opening a restaurant and they need a website for the restaurant. They should do it at Squarespace because A, it's, it's less work. It's not, it's, you're not becoming a full-time webmaster or whatever words we used to use for this. It's less work. B, it is terrific top-notch technology. It, their stuff is super fast. And the interface for making changes and stuff is really, really humane. It is not about going in and editing HTML and CSS and JavaScript and picking uh, application frameworks for the online stuff. Although if you want to, you can get in there. If you're capable of doing stuff like that, they don't lock you out of it. But the primary interface is visual. It's WYSIWYG. You just drag stuff around. You click a template and click apply, and it's applied to all of your pages at once, and it just works. Um, it it makes having a website not be part of your job. It's just something you, you can just create and be done with. Uh, and it's super great for people who are technically minded, people who could make a website from scratch, and people, your friends, your family, know that you could, are capable of that, and they come to you for help when they need a website. You can have them go to, to Squarespace and help them set it up or just point them there and let them Take it from there because it's that easy. And then you are you can wash your hands of it. You're done. You've put them in good hands. You don't have to feel guilty because you're giving them a second-rate experience. They're going to get a great website, and it's going to have great service, going to have you know 99.999 uptime. Um, and then you don't have to do the work. And if they do have a problem, they can just contact Squarespace. They have award-winning tech support that's open 24 hours. It's really great. Um, so the next time you need a website or the next time somebody you know needs a website, which is really, really, really where I think Squarespace is like the thing to file away in the back of your mind as a listener of a nerdy show like this, um, send them to Squarespace. Uh, you can get a free trial at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up to pay, just remember the offer code talk show. Once again, just talk show, no the, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. And you could purchase, pre-purchase like up to a year. So you could save, you know, uh, 10% on a whole year at Squarespace. So my thanks to Squarespace. Sounds They're, like- They're uh, up and coming. Yeah. They, you know what? And they seem like the sort of sponsor who, in my opinion, should do a lot of podcast sponsor, uh, advertising. I think it'd be a good fit. I think it's a fit. I do. I think yeah. that from what I know of the people who listen to podcasts uh, and what I know about this amazing new service, it seems like a- Seems like a fit. Hmm. 
So I have a piece as we record. I haven't published it yet. Hopefully by the time the show comes out, it'll be out. It may not be because <laughs> the older I get, the less <laughs> the less sure I am about when I'll be done with a piece that isn't truly in checking for typos, copy editing. Um, <laughs> yep. But I want to write about Apple in China, and I've been relatively uh, quiet about this because I wanted to think about it. But the news is that um, for Chinese-based iCloud users, uh, it's either happened already or is in the process of happening this month. So, you know, close enough. It's happening right now. Apple is transferring their iCloud accounts from Apple's own, Apple-owned iCloud data centers to data centers in mainland China that are owned by a Chinese company that Apple has contracted to run the data centers for iCloud users in China. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, China has passed a law that says that online services like this that serve customers in China have to have, to have their servers on Chinese soil. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I don't really think this makes that big a difference. I think that companies like Apple could comply with this law by opening Apple-owned data centers in China. It's it's just that they have to be on Chinese soil and are subject to Chinese law. Um, like I think one way to comply would be for Apple to own and uh, create and operate data centers in within China. Hmm. The way some, that these I, I companies, think some Chinese regulations are 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 specifically like a Western company can't own mm. like own a whole thing in China. They have yeah. to be an investor in a locally right. owned. So it may be maybe. that there's also an ownership right. issue there. Right. All right. So maybe uh, maybe 100% Apple owned wouldn't be possible. But anyway, it has to be partially Chinese owned. And so Apple is doing this. Microsoft is doing this with their Azure services. Or, uh, uh, Amazon's doing it with the Amazon Web Services. China or Google, I guess, is not because Google has effectively, as of several years ago, effectively pulled out of China. Right. Um, and uh, is this a good thing? No, it is clearly it, the. I think the world where where um, because the the company that Apple's contracting with in China is at least partially state owned. Um, I, it's it, who, who knows? It's very. I've read a lot of articles yeah. about it, and it's really they. Nobody seems to know, and I don't know that there is a way to know. Um, but effectively, I think that it, the before and after is that Chinese iCloud, China, the, the iCloud data of Chinese users is now m more susceptible to being, uh, you know, searched by Chinese government authorities than it was before when it was stored outside China on Apple-owned data centers, and that's not a good thing. Um, and people are, are upset about this. <laughs> so, what should yeah. Apple? What should Apple do? Uh, the thing that I want to address is that it seems to me that an awful lot of the people who care about this seem to think that what Apple should have done instead of complying is they should have not complied and just kept things the way they were with Chinese users' iCloud data on Apple's own servers outside China. Which sounds good, but is uh, not to be offensive to those of you who think that's what Apple should do is incredibly facile. 
It is, it, you've, you haven't thought this through all the way. If you think that that's on the table because it's not, if Apple tried that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> their, their iCloud servers services would be cut off by the government. Yeah. A, a new, a new uh, Chinese law that says you have to do this is not one of these things that's like really open to interpretation. Like, and, and, and presumably given how, how big Apple is in China, and how many things Apple is doing in China, including they've got like they've got like offices there and centers there, and they obviously they sell they've got retail and then they sell a lot of phones there. There's so many ways that Apple is invested in China. There's no way that they don't have very clear line of communication with the Chinese government. And when a law passes that says you have to do this, they know that means they have to do it. Like there's no, there's no wiggle room. There's no appeal to a different authority like this. That, it's a done deal when the law happens because the Chinese government controls the whole process. And so they, obviously they just said to Apple, we're going to have to run your servers for you. Like that was the deal. And it's it, it, the thing that people um, point out, and it is a good thing to compare it to, but the, the, the conclusion is far from clear is, um, people say, well, how come in America last year when in the, um, that San Bernardino mass shooting, when, um, the law enforcement had a, an iPhone owned by one of the, uh, perpetrators and it was locked and they wanted Apple to, uh, they wanted Apple to unlock it. And Apple said, we can't unlock it. Um, and they said, well, we want you to create a new version of iOS where we can circumvent the lock and then install that version of iOS that circumvents it on this iPhone. So then we can get the phone, which is a subtle difference from unlock it. It's technically the version of iOS that was that Apple made and designed could not merely be unlocked. There is no secret key that Apple holds that would unlock a phone, um, which is a good thing. And I don't, we could spend two hours just talking about why that is, but the more relevant thing is that Apple, Apple stood up to these claims in a very public manner and they weren't thumbing their nose at us law enforcement. In my opinion, they were incredibly respectful, but they were also very adamant about what, that they weren't going to come. They weren't going to do it. Uh, and they, why they don't think that there should be laws passed that would force them to do it. And they did this in a very public manner and um, obviously made no such public fuss regarding this change in China. Um, and so that's taken by some as proof that Apple cares about like uh, American users in a way that they don't care about their Chinese users. And I would argue, I can't disprove that but i would argue that the difference is entirely not about apple's take on americans or north americans versus chinese users but it's entirely about the differences between the united states government and the chinese government the united states government has some problems has a lot of problems i would say it has more problems than it did uh, about 18 months ago um but it is still a representative democracy with a history of individual civil liberties and a, uh, a legal system where everybody from individuals from corporations uh, gets their day in court and can fight things legally uh, and has freedom of speech and can can talk about things publicly. China has none of those things. They're an authoritative communist 
uh, effectively dictatorship, and it's actually taken a turn more towards dictatorship mm-hmm. just in recent weeks because President Xi uh, Jinping has has apparently gotten them. I don't think they've actually made this official, but they are uh, going to change their constitution so that he can remain uh, president as long as he wants, which could be for life. Um, there is no there, there is no way for Apple to legally make a big public stink about this in China. And it's also a different culture where it, it, Apple making a stink about it in um, the Western media, I guess, couldn't be ruled illegal in China. Like you can't break a Chinese law by having Tim Cook go on 60 Minutes and berate the Chinese government for passing this law. Um, but I, th- you're, you're being deeply, deeply, profoundly naive if you think there wouldn't be significant repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, what no, they I mean, this be. is, this is. I think it's. Uh, people either don't understand or are just being ju- disingenuous when they when they suggest if they do suggest that in China, oh well, you could appeal to the courts and maybe the 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 legislature, and it's like no, that's not. It's it's one thing. Like the decision is made. It's a, like you said, it's an authoritarian. Uh, it's a one party rule. It's essentially a dictatorship. It is. Uh, this is this is what Apple has been. Uh, told they need to do just like Microsoft and Amazon and everybody else. And so in the end, what is Apple's real choice here, right? Like Apple's real choice is either do it or leave China, basically, or like turn off iCloud in China, which is going to, which would be like kind of break all sorts of features of iOS. I think, I think they might do that, but then, then, you know, who knows what that's going to mean for their relationship with the Chinese government who might not appreciate Apple breaking their products in order to uh, avoid complying with this, with this law. Um, Here's a statement that Apple gave. I saw the same statement in a couple of um, news articles. It's only attributed to the company. Uh, And there's a direct quote. While we advocated against iCloud being subject to these laws, we were ultimately unsuccessful. Apple said. Uh, That's the only thing that's actually quoted. I don't know that the statement, I don't know if there was more that wasn't quoted or what, but then the rest of the news of Reuters article, Apple said it decided it was better to offer iCloud under the new system because discontinuing it would lead to a bad user experience and ultimately actually lead to less data privacy and security for its Chinese customers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the point. That's the point that I think is being overlooked. Yeah, let's not forget that because of Apple's various philosophies about how data is transmitted, much of what goes through iCloud is encrypted in transit and on the server. So, like, the idea here is Apple has built iCloud so that if Apple wants to look at your data on the server, it can't see it without, you know, it's it's just encrypted and resides on the server. Right. Um, so they've they've tried to build this system. You could argue they've tried to build this system so that Apple nor uh, any government that might force Apple to spy on your data, uh, they, they can't. They, they can't do it. It's not made to work that way. And that benefits them in China. Now, I think the next question is, 
at what point, if the Chinese government said you need to modify your software so that right. those cloud data is not encrypted, um, they could also do that in America, by the way. That was one of the questions about the San Bernardino case is, right. you know, the American uh, government could pass laws saying no more end-to-end encryption that we can't break. And if they did that, you know, guess what? Apple would follow the law because they're not going to not... Uh, do business in the world. <laughs> they right. have to do that. They would fight against it. But ultimately, if that was the law, they would have to follow it. That is a question I think I have about China is if the point of this is really just to control this data because they really want to look in it, the next step is going to be to tell Apple that they can't encrypt data on servers in China. And then that's to me, that's a bigger question for Apple because now you're changing your software to be less secure in certain parts of the world. Right. And, and, and that, you know, they, that may be when you walk away and say, well, we can't have our customers have their data be unencrypted on the server. But right now it is. Right. Except for like IMAP, iCloud email. Right. Um, Yeah. And the U.S. has passed laws like that. I mean, unfortunately, uh, truly, unfortunately, the U.S. lawmakers really seem deeply and profoundly uh, ignorant about encryption. Uh, and don't seem to uh, – uh, probably everybody in any field feels the U.S. law – or all lawmakers around the world are deeply ignorant of whatever fields they are. But it seems to me like particularly so with encryption. Um, it's – you know, I, I'm not good at it. And I you know, the, the, uh, was like one degree – one class short of a math minor in, in college. I mean I'm pretty good at math <laughs> and I'm pretty good with computers and I get lost in it. But I, I have a – basic idea but i remember there there have been some bad laws in the u.s i mean there was uh remember the dcss thing it was like there was a a a simple algorithm that would descramble dvds and uh it leaked and it was ruled illegal to use it even though it's just an algorithm but it was short enough that you could print the whole algorithm on a t-shirt and is this t-shirt illegal because it contains code that would that if you put it you know translated it into machine form would descramble a dvd i mean it was it's absurd uh and in my opinion uh not a lawyer but in my opinion a violation of the first amendment of free speech that you know if you can express an algorithm uh you know the algorithm should be free speech but there were also laws on the strength of encryption you know again going back to the 90s that was like a very 90s thing and it was like the you could only export computers and software that had a really weak encryption and so if you wanted to have software that was sold around the world it it you know the, there were limits on how strong you could make the encryption and whatever limits you place on encryption today they're weaker as time goes on and computers get more powerful you know, what might take an hour to crack today might take a minute in a couple of years. Uh, it, it's all very complicated, but ultimately, you know, and so we're not out of the woods, like, you you know, point being, we're not out of the woods here in the U.S. and in the rest of the West as well. Um, but China is obviously, you know, a place where you could expect that to be to be clamped down. I think the question of what would Apple do if China demanded a backdoor into every phone sold in China is a far more fascinating and interesting question than the one we're dealing with here with the China, with the data centers. Like, I don't want to, I don't think Apple took this lightly at all. And I think that this statement that they advocated against it, uh, I would take it. I would believe that they advocated it against it as strenuously as they felt they could at the very highest levels they felt they could reach. I really do. Um, uh, 
but that in China, that sort of thing takes place behind the scenes. And I think that the most, you know, the most you're going to get out of what that was publicly is a statement as, uh, what would you call it? Anodyne as while we advocated against it, you know, that that's publicly, that's the most you can get away with without, um, angering, you know, your counterparts in China. And, right. you know, let's face it, let's, and, and let's, you know, let's address the elephant in the room, which is that there's an enormous sum of money involved. It's almost unimaginable how much sum of money. I think right now I looked it up and it's actually fluctuated quite a bit over recent years um, because there was a while where iPhones weren't really available and then they were and they were super popular. And then about two years ago, um, what was it, like around the 6S and the 7 were didn't seem to sell as well in China. It was like the iPhone six did incredibly well because the, uh, all of the Asian countries, the, the really big phablet size phones seem to do better than they do everywhere else. Uh, and Apple was famously late to the bigger than four inch phone market. So combining that they hadn't had a big phone before and they're very popular in Asia, uh, the iPhone 6 was, you know, hugely popular and then it dipped in popularity and people think it might be because in China people were more sensitive to the appearance of the phone and they didn't want to buy a new iPhone 7 that just looked like an iPhone 6. And that, you know, that sort of sentiment obviously exists everywhere, but it might be stronger in China. But anyway, it's dipped, it's gone up and down, but it's been roughly like 8 to 12% of Apple's revenue. I think those were the yeah, numbers I had. It's uh, they're averaging somewhere between eleven and fifteen 11 billion and 15. a quarter, a billion dollars a quarter. Percentage aside, I mean it's a huge percentage, but it's also yeah. If you think about that, somewhere even if we say between eleven and fifteen billion, that's a fifty billion dollar a year right. chunk of money that comes from China. And you know, let's face it, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's a lot of money, and so that's. I mean, I think that would be the question. That's enough that, money to get uh, the. It's enough money to draw the very steady attention of the most profitable country <laughs> in the world, or company in the world, right? I mean, yeah. And Tim Cook talks about uh, a lot about how he's bullish on China, and he yeah. thinks in the long run it will be Apple's biggest market, right? Yeah. So, uh, and the idea that there is a middle class. Um, a poten in the next 15, 20 years, there will be a middle class in China the size of the entire population of the United States, right? right. Like, and that's and that's Apple's opportunity in China is to reach those people. And so, you know, they, I don't think that Apple will do anything it can to stay in China. Right. I think there are limits, and right. I do think I actually do think that at least for now, the Chinese government is aware of that, and. I don't think they have all the leverage here, right? Like, right. I think the Chinese government wants to push as far as they can all the time. But at the same time, I think they like having Apple. It, it, it adds that cachet that Apple is in their country and, and is participating in their economy and is bringing these goods in that people like. Um, or in this case, making them there and then sh shipping them inside China and all of that. But, you know, you get my point here. Like, I, I do think there is a point where Apple would walk away. But it would be an interesting thought exercise to say, what would that be? Like, would it be you have to unencrypt all the data in the cloud so we can see everything that's on every device of every iPhone in China? Right. Would that be enough to make Apple walk away? I don't Would Would uh, software changes that only occur in China? I mean, Apple already adds uh, support for, like, social media stuff right. that's inside China. Uh, special built into iOS and Mac OS because those services don't exist outside and they were created as Chinese alternatives to what's in the rest of the world. Like how far do, would they push Apple before Apple would say, you know what, we can't, we're going to walk away from $50 billion a year. Yeah. Uh, I, 
I don't know. And who knows? It could be $75 billion a year by the time it happens, right? I mean, well, I think Tim Cook believes that it'll be $150 billion right. a year in right. the next 15 years, right? And so it's, it's a lot to walk away from, but right. I do, everybody has their price, I suppose. But I do believe there would be a line where Apple would be like, we can't go there. And I, I'm, I'm not sure China wants that either. I think China, like, I, I don't know. I pr- don't pretend to know what the Chinese government wants anywhere, but right. it would seem to me like there is some value in, in Apple being in China for China as well. Um, and I do think there is a moment where Apple would walk away. I'd like to believe that anyway. All right. I get the impression, and I could be wrong, but I think it's – and you have to be worried about all these you know, surveillance and, and civil rights and search and seizure in all countries. Um, but I get the feeling that here in the U.S., what the government and through th- – you know, really law enforcement is most interested in is epitomized by the San Bernardino case, which is what they want is for when a crime happens and they get a phone off a suspect, they want to take that phone and plug it into a thing and see everything on the phone um, and to collect evidence and, you know, your location and photos and your texts and your emails. And um, for a very long time, uh, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, um, but there weren't such things as cell phones. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And there weren't such things as digital cameras. And, uh, you know, police, when they had a suspect, would collect whatever, would just collect whatever evidence they could. And then they would use that to build their case. And then there was a time when there were cell phones and the cell phones uh, had no encryption whatsoever. And you. <laughs> You could just plug any cable into them and plug them into any computer and see all sorts of things. Uh, And now, and the police really like that. And now uh, most phones are encrypted. And when you plug them into a new computer, you've, you've got to be able to do, you've got to be able to circumvent, you know, you either have to find a flaw in the OS or you need to compel the suspect to, uh, hand over the passcode to open their phone and there's no mathematical way around it. Again, you can find a bug in the OS that would let you get around it. And apparently there's one of those uh, recently in iOS mm-hmm. that is, uh, it's almost beside the point here, but there's a recent one. There's a, a couple of reports that some Israeli security company is selling law enforcement, a work around uh, the passcode entry limit on iOS so that you can put the, take a confiscated iPhone, put it up to a machine and it'll start trying uh, numeric passcodes and they've figured uh, it's not known what the workaround is, but they found a way around the limits that Apple places on that. Uh, I don't know. We don't know details, but anyway, uh, either a bug in the OS or get the user's passcode from them. Um, that it's to me that what I think the U.S. is mostly interested in, and the bad legislation that is most likely to pass. China, on the other hand, is building a surveillance state, and you can uh, yeah. there, you can certainly make the case that the U.S. post nine eleven uh, and the West, you know, Western Europe uh, has built up too much of a surveillance state over you know regular citizens. Um, but China is building like a, a truly dystopian, you know, uh, sci fi horror futuristic just you know surveillance state with cameras and facial recognition and every every bit of technology you can imagine and so i would imagine that in china the thing that would be the most dangerous would be some kind of legislation about encrypted communication and that they would just want everything unencrypted so they can you know their version of the nsa can just suck it all in yeah it's it's um 
I mean, again, this is why I like Apple's policies about encryption, but they could make encryption illegal again, and they could try that. And the only recourse there would be to uh, for everybody to get upset and put pressure on the politicians to not allow those laws to pass. I I think we talked about this, I think, on this show when the Santa Barbara thing happened, that um, law enforcement's job is to do as much as possible. It's not their job to be restrained, and they're not restrained. And that's fine because it's the court's job, and it is the law's job to limit what the police can do. And and that's that's just how it's supposed to work. So I don't I don't really uh I don't want to complain about the FBI saying we want everything from Apple. I want a judge <laughs> to look at laws passed by Congress and say, Mm-mm, you know, you can go this far but no farther." Right. Uh that's that's the right balance there. And in the US, hopefully, you know, we can have some of that. Um, and in China, they've got none, they got none of that. It is it is a scary prospect. The idea that the next stage here is for China to say, okay, now you need to not encrypt anything, and right, uh, right. and I, I, that's that's the point where I start to say I can see the argument for Apple to walk away, but I don't think we're there yet. And I think that to, to your point, um, Apple walking away makes a worse experience for iPhone users in China. Like yes. I, Apple staying in China, iPhone users in China get to use Apple products and they get to use iCloud with their data end-to-end encrypted. And that's all good. Like that's good for Chinese Apple users, even though right. it prevents the people. I think the people who, you know, people, the people want Apple to make a big political statement and right. say, no, China is bad. We're out of China. And Apple has been very pragmatic about it since the beginning, which is it's better for us to be there than not. And as long as that's the case, um, I think they'll stay. And yeah, it is very profitable. There's no doubt about it. Right. But I would hope anyway that they would, there would be some moment when they would be like, um, we will go this far, but no farther. I think the only three options that they have, the only three realistic options in broad strokes would be to do what they're doing, which is continue selling their products and their services and host them in Chinese-owned data centers. B, continue to sell their products, but no longer offer any iCloud services to um, Chinese users. And I don't know, like, do you know, like, I always say iCloud, 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 but this, does this affect the iTunes as well? Like, like, is the App Store hosted in, in this? I, I, I haven't found an answer to that. Um, yeah, I, that I that I don't know. That's an interesting question. But I, if it were, we know that the, if it were, we know it, that they're sub- subject to the laws, right? We're, because we, they removed the VPN apps from the Chinese app store because the, legally they were told they need to do that. That's that it was against the law to have them there. Whether I'd imagine that it is, I imagine those have to be on their servers in China too. But it's covered by the law regardless. Apple has a fact about this, and it's very interesting to me. Uh, Here's the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole thing. Apple services in the mainland of China are now operated by Chinese internet services company. I'm, I'm going to do a terrible job of this. Guzu on the uh, Cloud Big Data Industrial Development Company Limited, which which is a very Chinese sounding uh, name. The, the Cloud Big Data Industrial Development Company Limited. This allows us to continue to improve iCloud services in China and comply with Chinese regulations. iCloud services and all the data you store with iCloud, including photos, videos, documents, and backups, will be subject to the new terms and conditions of iCloud operated by GCBD. If you are not a Chinese citizen residing in the mainland of China, 
you can, and this is a link, edit the country or region setting of your Apple ID to reflect your current country or region and continue using iCloud under Apple's terms and conditions. I believe that that means like, so if you and I went to China for a while or, you know, like Apple employees who were there for months at a time, uh, you know, working in the supply chain, that just because they're in China, because they're not Chinese citizens, they're not subject to this and they can edit the country. And I'm guessing that editing the country has probably limited by like where your payment source is coming from. Like, I don't think it means that anybody in China can, this is a giant loophole where any Chinese citizen can just claim to be from another country. To be in Hong Kong instead. And right. Just, uh, yeah. But it doesn't say anything about the app store. I don't know. But if it did, then this is would be Hong a... Kong a region? I don't know. So that's a side point. Yeah, I mean, we could a... say Taiwan, but right. I, there's the, I wonder what the, the Hong Kong users use uh, GCBD or, or do they get a separate thing because the Hong Kong laws are a little bit different? And then, but yeah, uh, the, this point stands. If I'm in mainland China, do I say, no, no, I'm in Taiwan? Yeah, that's it. And just keep on using that or or not? I, I don't know. <laughs> I was probably going to, not. Probably, I was, probably you can't get on the internet if you don't say you're in China when you're in China. I don't know. I don't know. But if it if it if it means software updates have to come from these services too, then it would effectively mean they can't not comply because they can't sell iPhones and not be able to ship software updates. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. But that is the other option. But I don't think that's tenable. I don't really. I feel like there's too many of these features that are the the core part of it. You know, I, I mean, HomePod literally can't work without. A connection to iCloud to to talk to Siri, uh, you know. There's no way to to talk to it. I mean, what do you? Get? I mean, I guess you could use it as an AirPlay speaker, but you know, who who's going to buy a HomePod as an AirPlay speaker? You know, when the main interface doesn't work. Um, so I I just don't think it's tenable. I don't even think it's worth spending the time on the show to say why. I feel like this iCloud services are too central to most consumers' use of Apple products, particularly the iPhone. Um, I mean, sure. In an industrial setting, there's all sorts of ways you could use a Mac or that you might even want to use a Mac without any kind of iCloud stuff set up on it. Um, but let's face it, we're talking about the iPhone here. Um, and so the third option would be to stop selling the iPhone in China. And obviously that would be a huge hit financially to Apple. And I think at this point, I honestly think it's, I think, it, I, I think it's questionable whether Apple could do that and they could obviously do it legally, but I feel like in terms of, uh, would investors allow that? Would, I mean, I honestly think it could cost Tim Cook his job if he, if this was the line he was willing to draw. And I, I am not melodramatic about such things. I don't call, you know, I wouldn't call for him to be fired over it, but would it investors uh, be so outraged that they that that they would force him out? Would the would the board allow it? I, I don't know. I'm unclear on because um, I I think that this is another interesting intellectual exercise, which is I'm unclear on what Tim Cook would have to do to get fired. Right. Like, is choosing human rights over the Chinese market? Something that would be a look that the that the board of directors and investors in Apple would want to say, no, 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 we want ruthless approach. It does not matter what happens in China. We want their money. And that's all that that matters to us. Would they would they do that or not? I'm not sure 
that they could get away with doing that. But it is a question of like, what would it take? What, if Tim Cook was like, we're going to not even sell the iPhone anymore or right. whatever. At what point are they like, no, 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 no. Okay, you need to go now. Um, I, I'm not sure, um, given Apple's corporate philosophy, um, I don't think that a decision to, it's gotten so bad inside China that we just have to leave and we're regretful and we hope to come back someday. But, right. they, you know, we respect our, our, our customers in China. And so we're pulling out. Ah, boy, that would be really hard to fire him over that, right? So I'm right. not sure that I, that it, it would be a tough business decision, though, for it, sure, because it would be kissing off billion, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And, and future and you know future growth. It's yeah. you know it's no joke. So would it cost him his job? I, I am absolutely unwilling to say that. I almost want to say no, probably not, but it I, I it could. I think it's unpredictable. I don't think anybody could predict the 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 repercussions of this. Somebody who knows the board could could give us the answer somebody who's on the board you know al gore hit me up uh yeah you know al gore could 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 give us an answer and say whether the board would allow it who knows if they've talked about it right i, I it seems to me like the sort of thing that the board would talk about uh in great detail um what would shareholders do and what would, you know, what happens if, you know, and shareholders can't just barge in and fire Tim Cook, but shareholders can dump their Apple stock. And if Apple loses massive amounts of market cap in the aftermath of this, it, it could force the board's hand. Uh, I'm just saying it's unpredictable. And then the other factor, the X factor in this is what would the Chinese government do to Apple if Apple were to, to do something like that, to make a big show of, pulling out of China, the consumer market, or of going into the Western press and berating the Chinese government over this, which is another thing that I think the idealists would like to see Tim Cook do to prove that he cares and that he's not a hypocrite who's only interested in the money. Um, because Apple cannot, they cannot pull out of China completely. They, they're, they're manufacturing uh, an assembly that's right cannot take place at the scale they need to take it to take place at and i think i'm not an expert on it but i don't even think even vaguely close to the scale there is no there is no plan b if, if apple isn't manufacturing in shenzhen um and at foxconn there's no other place in the world through, uh, um, you know, again, this could be a great two-hour conversation with Jeff Williams about the unique aspects of, um, you know, China for the supply chain. But there is nowhere else. There's nowhere else where you can make 70 million uh, iPhones in a quarter. Can't happen. Not even close. I don't even know. If Apple yeah. had to make iPhones, even if they were given a two-year head start, um, and that two years from now, the iPhone would have to be entirely would never have could never set foot on Chinese soil. I, I, I don't even know what the most iPhones they can make a quarter is, but it, uh, it would be a fraction, a tiny fraction of what they sell now. It would crater the company. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I you could argue, and again, this sounds like hyperbole, but I actually think it's it's true. Is that the most the most powerful person in the world when it comes to Apple's fate might be, you know. Xi Zenpeng, you know, that the Chinese could, if they chose, and I, I don't think they would, I think that they are, they're looking to engage more with the West and their economic success over the last few decades is all about that. I mean, the last thing yeah. they want to look at is look like is a crazy, you know, crazy place where Western businesses can't trust them. 
Um, right. The long the long game might be to build up their own internal capabilities so that they're so powerful that they can start to dictate what they sell yeah. in the rest of the world and they take over. But today, this is one of those places where Apple has leverage. Is right. today, if the perception was that no out no non Chinese tech company could build their products in China anymore. Um, it would be brutal and it would take time. Right. But the tech industry could abandon China right. if China g- pushed it too far. Right. And that would be devastating for the Chinese economy. Because right. the Chinese economy, we think about how huge it is in terms of uh, of the people who are in China. But the Chinese economy is still uh, in in development. And if you turn away all of that foreign investment in manufacturing and all of those things and make it an unpleasant place to be, then... It, that would really hurt China. So that's what that's what those who are not Chinese have going in terms of leverage with the right. Chinese government is like kicking. If they kicked Apple out, like, I mean, would all of the tech companies probably be like, okay, we need to start pulling out of China or hedging our bets, and that would be bad for China. So they probably wouldn't do that. But you know, I, I don't know the delicate. Uh, repercussions, ramifications of Apple having a bad relationship with the Chinese government in terms of, you know, their manufacturing costs and getting approval for new plants and all of those things. It might be brutal. Hmm. Yeah, it's like the trade war equivalent of mutually ex- assured destruction. Like you right. can do now, it. Trade but wars are easy. I've been assured. I'm assured they're easy to win. Easy to win. Uh, you know, while we've been on the air, Gary Cohen has resigned. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's infrastructure week. It's, fun. <laughs> it's It is hard to get through a two-hour podcast without at least one senior Trump administration official resigning while you're, <laughs> while you're in, the, in Skype. It's, you know, we do upgrade on, uh, on Monday mornings. I do that with Mike Hurley and, uh, it never fails that Apple releases a beta or there's a Mark Herman uh, report, or there's always something that happens during that. And like, yeah. I, I guess at this time, yeah. uh, we get a resignation. It's yeah. time. The resignation clock went off. Yeah. It must be, it's Tuesday afternoon must be a resignation. So I was going to say to the question of a few minutes ago of whether Hong Kong is, is, is part of this. Uh, and I said, you know, who we need to ask is a friend of the show, Ben Thompson, who because he lives in in Taipei, is intimately right. familiar with this. Uh, and literally, while I was thinking it, he texted me, and so I've quick. <laughs> I like, well, while you're here, uh, that's real real time follow up. Yeah, it 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 is outside. It, it, Beijing controls it, and it's a very. I knew this. It's it's you know it was hand, handed over from uh, British control to right. Beijing control in 1997. But they're outside the Great Firewall, and they still have their and, own immigration, their own passwords, um, and right. so it is. So they're not, part of Greater China from an Apple right. perspective. Greater not China mainland is China. Right. That is the thing I sometimes conflate is what is official mainland and it is kind of common sense because if you have to cross some of the pacific ocean to get an island yeah Yeah. it's not the mainland uh so if you have to cross the ocean you're outside mainland china um so so, uh, it's hong kong it's close though right hong kong is like a peninsula yeah Uh, i don't know anyway my my geography is is, it's not subject to this hong kong uh iCloud users yeah it's got its special it's special status what were we talking about just before that? Before Ben Thompson interrupted the show so rudely? I don't know. <laughs> At my request. Uh, anyway, it's complicated. Uh, I, I, I guess we were talking supply chain stuff. Um, 
Yeah, in theory, Apple could move it outside, but it would be years long. It would be a, a yeah. disruption to end all disruptions. Uh, and I don't think that's in China's interest either. But in small yeah. ways, China, if Apple decided to be uh, to 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 violate what they would consider the decorum, I don't know what you want to say. There are ways that they could make Apple's life slightly more uncomfortable. Like I don't think yeah, they would do anything Apple, drastic. If- if Apple played hardball, they would make they would turn up the heat on Apple, and it would be un, Apple's got enough stakes in China that it would be uncomfortable, and and so Apple, you know, they both both sides have leverage, and I think there's probably a lot of conversation and negotiation that goes on behind the scenes, um, yeah, yeah, and then we probably don't see almost any of that. Uh, there was a story in 2014, uh, release of iPhone six delayed in China. Apple is facing a potential setback in China, one of its biggest and fastest growing markets after the much anticipated introductions here of the new iPhone models were delayed. On Wednesday, Apple told China's this was a dateline September 10. So probably like the day after the announcement. Uh, On Wednesday, Apple told China's big three big state owned mobile service providers that it would not release the iPhone six and six plus on mainland China on September 19, when sales start elsewhere. The carriers had already booked advertising campaigns for the phones. The move set off consternation among Apple's... uh, This is a New York Times story, by the way. As well as with consumers who had been eagerly awaiting the introductions. Apple did not explain the delay, executives at the carrier said, but it appeared the phones had not received approval from Chinese regulators to go on sale. Um. This, to me, reading between the lines, is that something happened and Apple somehow pissed somebody off in China and someone in China uh, decided to delay the iPhone. I mean, do you think that it didn't receive approval from Chinese regulators because Apple forgot to file the paperwork on time? (laughs) I'm sure that's it. I'm sure I'm sure Bob down in in in, uh, legal. It's like, oh, right, China, I had it to do, and I... Uh. Yeah, he's got, like, a checklist of countries, and it's like, you know, FCC in the U.S., check, you know, Great Britain, check, Germany, check. Oh, China, forgot about it. No, this, yeah. to me, you know, and then the iPhone 6 did go on sale eventually, um, but at the very last minute, after the three carriers had already placed a big ad campaigns uh, about with the date September 19th, that Apple says, up. Oh, it, and even the it appears to be that <laughs> that it was held up by the regulators that nobody it appeared the phones had not received approval from Chinese regulators to go on sale. That's the type of thing that is different about China than the U.S. And it's subtle, right? It's not uh, we're going to shut down your factory in Foxconn. It's at the last minute. You're going to ha- you're going to have to go to these companies and say it won't go on sale. You can't tell them why. <laughs> and tough, right? That's the yep. shit sandwich that China the Chinese government gave Apple in 2014. Is oh yeah, you thought your phone was going on sale in nine days? Nope. And you don't tell them why. And that's it. And there's probably a thousand little ways that China could uh, screw with Apple like that. Let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of this episode. It's Casper. Casper has a new mattress. They call it the Wave, and it's their most innovative mattress uh, that they've ever made. It's the first mattress of its kind 
to relieve pressure at 36 different points so you can feel relaxed in ways you never thought possible. Uh, the, the Wave mattress by Casper features advanced temperature-regulating technology to help you sleep cool and comfortable without overheating during the night. And only the Wave has five layers of superior foam, including a cushioning top layer for maximum comfort. It is their biggest breakthrough in sleep technology uh, for exceptional comfort and deep restorative sleep. Uh, whether you're a back, stomach, or side sleeper, and I'm going to tell you personally, I am all three. I, uh, I, I'm, every time I wake up in the middle of the night, I always switch. I will go from, I, I sleep all three ways, but it doesn't matter. Some people sleep all sleep on the, you know, the same way. My wife is uh, pretty much a side sleeper. Um, uh, uh, the Casper wave is designed for all three. Um, uh, and it gives you support and relief everything you need for a good night's sleep. And thanks to their patent pending contouring system, it adjusts your body and your natural curves. Uh, the Wave boasts a high-quality sleep surface comparable to similar high-end mattresses on the market for less money because they sell direct to you. You've heard that before. Experience their most innovative mattress in your home with the 100-night risk-free trial. This is the thing. They make great mattresses. We've got a couple of them in the house already. Uh, they've been sponsoring the show for a while. The 100-night free risk, uh, risk-free thing, that's the key. That's the, You'd think like, ah, I don't know about buying a, a, you know, a mattress, even if it's cheaper than other brands, if it's lower price because they're selling direct, it's still hundreds of dollars, might be over 1000 for a, a big one. I'm not spending a thousand bucks on a mattress that I've never even seen. I'm telling you, a hundred nights risk free. Get it? They ship it to you in the little tiny box that is ridiculous. You cannot believe that there's like a queen or king mattress in there. You, you open it up, um, uh, and the wave purchases. If you get a wave, it comes with in-home white glove delivery and setup for free. This is, you know, let's face it, this is a Waves Deluxe mattress. This is the, this is the higher end thing. But you don't even have to take the box up the stairs. They get the the people come in, they set it up for free, and you still get the hundred night risk free trial. That's how confident they are in the uh, in in this mattress. And for a Wave, speaking of a hundred. You can save a hundred bucks on any wave mattress by going to casper.com, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash talk show 100. The code is talk show 100, talk show 100. And that 100 is easy to remember because that's how much money you save. You save a hundred bucks. Terms and conditions do apply, but go to casper.com slash talk show 100. Find out more about this great mattress. And save a hundred bucks, hundred bucks. That's a, you, it's like we're paying you to listen to this podcast. You're making money. You get the you got one of those Caspers. Oh yeah, it's yeah, it, just like the uh, just like the away. Yeah, I, I didn't want to spoil. I didn't want to spoil. Just like you, I didn't want to spoil the third. The, I got all the podcast stuff too. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to spoil it earlier, but I, I figured that's what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. What you could do, you know, you can combine these things. You could. Uh, Depending on like you know like let's say you live in a small apartment you don't have a lot of storage space you could put your uh, you could put your away suitcase underneath your bed that has a Casper mattress on it for storage uh, you know mm-hmm. look at that synergy I could mention what kind of underwear you're wearing but they're not a sponsor this week so I'm not going to. <laughs> Uh, the last, oh, you know what? There's two topics left and I know we've been on for a while. I don't want to have another four hour episode. Uh, 
I'm just I'm going to spoil them both. I'm going to say I want to talk about these MacBook Air rumors and the the state of the MacBook Air. And I think we'll do that first. And then uh, I told you already I want to talk about this NRA TV and what Apple and Amazon etc should do about them. Um, the MacBook Air rumors. You you have got a column. Uh, I think I've gotten a, a pre-release access to it. I don't know if that's authorized or not. But you've got a MacWorld column about this, so I'm going to let you summarize the situation because it's a terrific yeah, column. So- so the the MacBook Air, there's this rumor from KGI that they're going to update the MacBook Air and maybe cut the price, although KGI's uh, track record with pricing is not as great as supply chain. So, but, the, you know, something going on with the MacBook Air. And I had one of those moments of like, what the hell is going on with the MacBook Air? Like, it sticks around. It is old. It's got all the tech that Apple has already replaced in all of their other laptops, but it sits there because it's nine ninety nine, and Apple has not um, taken other products and like gradually reduced their prices to hit the nine ninety nine, and then kicked the MacBook Air to the curb. That hasn't happened. Um, but nor have they canceled the MacBook Air and say and said, "Look, if you want a new Apple laptop, you need to spend twelve ninety nine on a MacBook or a 13-inch no-touch bar MacBook Pro. Like, you, you, those are your choices. Um, they haven't done that. And I think the reason is that they feel like they're really vulnerable in certain markets, including education, um, where there's a, mark, there's a segment of their buyer, you know, their buying group, of their customer group, that is not going to, you know, that $1,000 is a, is a brighter line and that they need to be competitive down there. And so yeah. they keep the MacBook Air around. I also get the sense from people who work at Apple stores that the MacBook Air still sells really well. Yep. And that there are a lot of them around. You were saying to me um, yesterday that like you went into a cafe and there's MacBook Airs everywhere. <laughs> I it's a cafe that I go into all the time because it's the closest place to get coffee that's not my kitchen. And there's a lot of I think they're grad students because they're clearly students. Uh I often see um it, it, I'm so old now that like I don't I can't tell the difference between a 26-year-old and an 18-year-old. <laughs> But I think yeah. that they're grad students. And the, the the tell is that I often see them with a stack of blue books. Uh, and so that means they're grad uh, yeah. assistants grading. The grading papers, yeah. Um, uh, it's, you know, but it's a big, uh, uh, you know, big. there's lots of places to sit, lots of counter space along the windows, along the outside. So it, it could, you could fit a lot of people. And I, I always, I, did, I can't help it. Whenever I'm in an airport or a coffee house or any place where people are using devices i just i don't i usually don't count and keep track but i do like a eyeball survey of what are people using and macbook airs are clearly uh insanely popular i remember it was you in particular you and i were on this show probably over a year ago talking about apple laptops and somehow you and i had talked ourselves (laughs) into thinking that the macbook pro was apple's most popular macbook uh, and I think that we, we uh, unlike both of us, I think, had somehow really been thinking about people like us and the Mac right. users of lore, of yore, um, and really lost touch of how big Apple has grown in the mass market. And, right. and, and, you know, like I heard, from, I, you probably heard the same thing, but I heard from a bunch of people that work in Apple stores, you know, you and Jason are n- nuts. <laughs> Like yeah. we, it's it's all uh, MacBook Airs. I could you know people who work in the app and the Apple store said that they could go all day and sell nothing but MacBook Airs and and this yeah. was a year ago and I don't know that that's changed and I think a big part I, of it I think a big part of it is fundamentally price I think it's it's yeah. that there's an awful lot of people and in the old days price was never the top reason to buy Apple stuff 
or never the top, even if you were already going to buy Apple stuff, price was for most Mac users, wasn't the biggest driving factor. Obviously it's always been for some, right? There's some people who it's like, I need a computer and I don't have a lot of money. So I've kind of got to get the cheapest one I can get. I mean, that's all, of course, that's a true for everything, right? But it wasn't a huge segment of the Mac market. And uh, Apple's gotten so big. And I think that the halo effect that, you know, people first started talking about with the iPod. Um, I think the halo effect, people don't use that term anymore, but I think the halo effect of the iPhone is simply unfathomable. I think the number mm-hmm. of people who, cause they're going to get a phone no matter what. And they had some other phone and then they got an iPhone and they're like, you know what? This is better. I like this better. This is nicer. Next time I buy a laptop, I'm getting an Apple laptop. I'm done with it. I really, I, I, but then they go in, look at the prices and and then they look at the prices and they're like, wow. And they're like, I guess I get this 999 one, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause 999 is not a cheap laptop, but it is, that's the buy-in for the Apple platform. And I, so I, I do think it's price. Um, and, uh, the other thing, my, my theory anyway, is that we're in an interesting place where a lot of the features that Apple is using to differentiate the higher end laptops, a lot of the people who care about price just don't either don't care about them yep. or don't care about them enough yep. or in some cases it's a liability like and I've I've given advice to people about what what laptop should I buy what new Mac laptop should I buy and I always have to like disclaim with like the MacBook that it's not just $300 more than the MacBook Air but you're going to have to buy a bunch of adapters because it's it's using USB-C. So like yeah. if you don't care about Retina, a lot of us really care about Retina. There are a lot of people who don't care. They nope. they they'll either they or don't notice. Yeah. <laughs> like one of one of the two. So so yeah, $300 more but it's got Retina. They don't care. Uh USB-C potentially a liability more than an asset because it's a lot of adapters to the stuff that they've got. Right. Um having a MagSafe connector that is super convenient and charges your computer without taking up Either 100% of the ports if you buy a MacBook or half the ports if you buy the 1299 MacBook Pro without touch bar, like MagSafe's better. Uh, The keyboard is, I would argue, better on the old MacBook Air. But even if you like the new keyboard, you can't argue that the new keyboard wouldn't be a dramatic, like, adaptation for somebody who's used to the old keyboards, has an old Apple laptop. So you go into the store and you type on the new keyboard and you type on the MacBook Air and you're like, oh... I just want the thing that I already know. And at that point, like, you've got, like, a whole bunch of reasons that are viewed from Apple's standpoint are, like, technology advancements, which is why this product costs more. And the people who are shopping say, no, (laughs) none of those things is an advancement and certainly not enough of an advancement for me to spend an extra 300 bucks. So I'll just take the MacBook Air. Yeah. I think that's it. I think you made a good point. I mean, you're not the first. I mean, it's, I think it's, and but as time goes on, I'm more and more convinced of it. I mean, I don't think there's any way to argue that uh, that the loss of MagSafe isn't an overall step backwards. I, I think MagSafe is better than USB or whatever you call it. I was going to say USB C, but is that what it is? I don't know. Or is that yeah, USB C? Uh, and I, you know, there are some. Can it's it, it, there are trade offs, you know, uh, on uh, the accidental. TIFF podcast last week, uh, right. I think Casey, uh, um, what's his last name? Uh, Bl- I think he just goes by uh, Blister. Bliss. Yeah, Blister. Blister. Right. Uh, He's our get- buddy. Blister. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know if he spelled it with two S's. Because that's what I assumed, because he's I think I think Casey he didn't, List, and that's even Blister? worse, because it's yeah. L-I-S-S. It's right, right there. Oh. Mm. 
Poor Casey. Uh, but anyway, he mentioned that while they were recording the show, he was recording using uh, uh, his little tiny MacBook, and he needed to power up his Switch, and he could just unplug the MacBook's USB-C and then use that to charge up uh, an underpowered yeah. Switch. It's convenient. It's convenient to have multiple devices that use the same thing, and only the MacBook uses uh, the the, the uh, MagSafe. But... Uh, the fact that the MagSafe is MagSafe <laughs> and can just be pulled out is tremendous. And right. I it's love, I love the, the, the indicator light. I, I really, yeah, I, right. I, I love the indicator light and it just, every once in a while it happens where like a plug isn't in the wall, right. Or y- you've plugged it into a wall socket that happens to be hooked up to a light switch. And yep. so it's not getting power and you get uh-huh. this instant feedback of, yes, it's charging because if you're like packing to go on a trip tomorrow and you're like, all right, let me charge my MacBook and you don't even open it up and you just plug it in. It is really reassuring to me to see that, uh, that orange light come on to say, yes, it is soaking up power and I can just walk away and pack my away suitcase, uh, that I've pulled out from under my bed with a Casper mattress on it. Exactly. And know that when I go back to that MacBook in the morning, that it's fully charged and, you know, it, 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 it's a cool thing. And I'm not, and I'm not arguing that like, I mean, I think it is arguable, but it's like, that's the thing is it's arguable. And yeah. I'm not saying that people don't see the value of these new tech things yeah. like Apple does, because I think people do. The MacBook is selling. The MacBook right. Pros are selling. They are selling pretty right. well. But yeah. the MacBook Air is also selling. Right. And I and like those people don't seem to be, you know, th- those are the people who are not convinced <laughs> that yeah. it's worth an extra $300 yeah. for these other features. And so my my overall question is like, okay, we got this report that there's going to be an update. We all would have bet money that the MacBook Air would have been discontinued probably like a year ago. Or gone at, at education, maybe, maybe gone education only at a lower right. price, right? Right. But instead, it's still kicking around because I think they can't take they can't take it off and it obviously is making uh the the margins on it have to be great the margins are office obviously great on the macbook and the 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 macbook pro so um i wonder like what's the end game here and and do they do they finally give up and make like a retina laptop that's uh, a thousand do they just keep this thing around I, i i legitimately wonder at what point they can't sell a fifth generation intel processor anymore and that's that's the thing that is in the back of my mind is like well if i was apple and i didn't want to put any real work into like building a new macbook air enclosure because in the long run this this is all going to go away but i need to keep selling it maybe we design a new you know a new motherboard that fits in the same space right. as the old motherboard but you is the seventh generation Intel and core processor? Don't and even just an, keep it alive. We don't even announce it in an event. We just it just suddenly. Oh yeah, we know it's just new processors in right. the MacBook Air. It yeah. continues to be nine ninety nine. Goodbye. Like right. that's it. Literally, like they did when they used right. the the most recent fifth generation one they could when they did the speed bump last yeah. year, and then and then just walk away. Maybe they would do that, but it's still like super weird that they're keeping this old laptop that looks nothing like any of their other laptops. So that's weird. The other weird thing is it it just keeps bringing back how strange it is that there's this MacBook Pro that's not like the other MacBook Pros. It's using the 15-watt processor that the MacBook Air uses. It's using that, that that, that no-touch bar MacBook Pro. It's three pounds. It's it's 20 grams. It's less than an ounce heavier than the MacBook Air. It's a little bit thicker on the... 
than the thin side, but thinner than the thick side of the yeah. MacBook Air 13-inch. It's so clearly a MacBook Air in anything but name. Maybe that, and they've already dropped the price $200 right. on it. So maybe that one keeps going down and eventually becomes the replacement for the MacBook Air. Why it's called a MacBook Pro, I still don't entirely understand. I, that seemed always seemed weird that they have like... One you know, one of these things is not like the other, yeah. but that's that's where we are. So like, I just they, don't know what the end game is. Could they sell it under a different name other than MacBook Pro, even if it is form factor wise? Let's say while while closed and you can't see whether it has a Touch Bar or not, identical to the MacBook Pro. Like, is that it that they didn't want to make another new form factor? Uh, I don't it, know because the marketing is so confusing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, it, it's. I don't have you know, not working at Apple, I don't actually have any responsibility for the margins and things like that. So it's easy for me to say this, but I'm going to say this anyway, which is I kind of feel like that's the MacBook Air and that maybe what they ought to do is just cut its price to $9.99, maybe by decontenting it right. a little bit. You know, Microsoft did that with the Surface uh, the, the Surface Book, where they basically made a $9.99 version that's kind of lousy yeah. in terms of the specs, but it gets them under 1000 and just say, hey, this is the MacBook Air now and let the old one go away. I don't think they'll actually do that because they would be giving away an awful lot of margin. But at the same time, like that would be a modern laptop. It yeah. is basically the 13 inch air. It weighs the same. It looks the same, but it's got the retina screen and all of that. Yeah. Like I, I, instead of the MacBook, which like you pay a premium for, but it's like super thin and light. I could see why you pay a premium for that, but not for that MacBook Pro. That is like it, it's literally the processors that the MacBook Air should be using. It's the weight of the MacBook Air. It's just called MacBook Pro. Right, same footprint. It, yeah, it's it, it, the naming thing is actually the part that it, it's it it it's not like they picked bad names every step of the way. It's that the way that everything evolved wound up with the names being all messed up. Where mm -hmm. the product that's just called the MacBook with no adjective after it is. It's not premium priced, but it is also not sub 1000. And right. it's also limited in certain ways because it only has one port. And so, and, and, right. and it is strikingly small and lightweight and thin. Um, and the product that's called the MacBook Air, which implies that it's lightweight, is way thicker and heavier than the just plain MacBook. But it literally is the just plain MacBook. If you tell a regular person, I got to, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> going to switch to a MacBook, right? What is the default? Right. What is the, the most common device that they sell, the most common MacBook that they sell? And what's the one that you see everywhere? And what are the features of this? Well, I don't know, a couple of regular USB ports and a MagSafe and, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. familiar. It is the MacBook, right? The MacBook should be the MacBook Air because it's thin and light and ag it, aggressively so. And um, the MacBook Air should be called the MacBook. So well, that, I thought that's, that that's what it should be. That that's you know you just you just nailed it. Which is what we all thought this would go to, and it's still like. I, it just it. I think the margins and the and the cost of the products have precluded this. Is like the MacBook should be nine ninety nine. The MacBook Pro thirteen inch Escape no touch bar should be the MacBook 
right? Like right. the the MacBook and should probably be what it is now, yeah. which is twelve ninety nine. And then there should be the MacBook Pro above it. But in, in and that that twelve inch MacBook could be the MacBook Air, right? Like right. that. That's sort of what we kind of felt was happening here, and it just hasn't happened. And I mean, maybe there's somebody at Apple who runs the numbers and says, why would we? cut our margins by $200 yeah. on the MacBook when we make, you know, every one of those sales we lose, yeah. we're making to the air where our margins might even be better. Like, yeah. I, I can see how it works math-wise. It's just at some point, product line-wise, it's it just gets weirder and weirder the longer we go that a laptop that was designed like six years ago is still being sold brand new. And and that has this name that implies something about it being thin and light. <laughs> it's the lightest, yeah, and it's a pound heavier than the lightest when laptop it, that when Apple it, makes, yeah. When in, in reality, it's literally the most generic MacBook you can imagine. It's what people are familiar with and, and functionally and, and weight-wise and everything. It is, it's just everything is like, well, that's like the baseline. It's a very strange situation. It's really strange. And I think it's been lost a little bit. Like the MacBook Air's odd place in the lineup and and uncertain future has been lost a little bit with all of us talking so much about whether our keys are getting stuck on the new keyboards in the you know MacBook Pro, which is yeah. still an and issue, but... And the fact that it exists as the Air and the MacBook is not called a MacBook Air suggests to me that they're trying to phase out. Like, the, the whole idea was they're phasing it out. It won't be around long, and right. then the names will make sense again. They'll be right. MacBook and MacBook Pro. Except they're not phasing it out, and maybe yeah. they're updating it, which, yeah. you know, you got to think was never the plan. Like, right. something happened, and maybe it was unexpected demand. Maybe everybody at Apple really thought everybody would just start buying the MacBook, and it didn't happen. And they're not willing to make it $999, and so they got stuck here. But something happened, because I think, I think the plan early on i don't know what was the deal with that 13 inch macbook pro i don't know i don't i can't understand that one at all but the clearly the plan with the macbook was that it was going to be the floor and the macbook air would die and it you know they can't kill it it just it won't we can't miss it if it won't go away right. which is the, it just won't we won't die right and compare and contrast with the ipad lineup where there was an ipad air and it was a mega popular product and right. much beloved and probably still in use by tens of millions of people um because iPads just go and go and go until you finally drop it and shatter the glass i mean i, I don't know of any ipad that's gone out of commission until <laughs> until the glass breaks uh uh, maybe like the very first couple of generation ones have been put on shelves, but they last forever. But there was an iPad Air yeah. and they phased it out. And rather than keep it around and sell at a lower price, they created a new product right in the middle called iPad. <laughs> and it is yeah. just an iPad. It is 9.7 inches, which is what you think. And it is pretty fast and zippy. And uh, then there's two iPad Pros, which cost more. And they're way more powerful. They're way faster. And they uh, support advanced things like the pencil. Uh, makes sense. That all makes all makes sense. And if, you know, for whatever, you know, it seems like it's, you know, it's still hanging around, still there. There's the iPad mini, which is mini and smaller. Yeah, like, like the MacBook Air, it right. feels like a product that Apple just seems to want to disappear but hasn't right. quite disappeared yet yeah so uh, ipad naming wise you know makes total sense you, you know yeah you know, macbook naming doesn't really make a lot of sense anyway we'll see well i i really hope so i hope that they do something to, to straighten this out 
Yeah, I, I was looking at PCs that are priced like this, and the the, the fact is. There are PCs spec'd like that 13-inch um, MacBook Pro without touch bar that are like 800 bucks, yeah. 700 bucks, And they've got Retina, and they've got the seventh-generation Intel Core processors. They are—that's that's what you can get for a, a, a you know, premium-ish PC laptop yeah. around 1000 bucks. So I know that that would be hard for Apple margin-wise, but how long can Apple keep selling a non-Retina macbook I, I mean at some point they just have to stop right, right. Like, maybe not yet i don't know i don't know but at some point it's like they're just gonna they're gonna have like a, a revolt from mac developers that they still have to keep making non-retina graphics i mean i guess it <laughs> yeah. might be a while before you can assume that all retina non-retina macs are out of use but as long as they're still selling them brand new today and it's a super popular product you know that that's years from now like yeah <laughs> Like it's not even on a horizon when you can ship a Mac app that doesn't have that doesn't assume support for Retina graphics. It's crazy. All right. Anyway, last topic of the show. Um, I want to talk about this thing where there's there's been uh, uh, to me a different public reaction here in the U.S. Uh, to the school shooting in uh, uh, the, the Parkland is the town and the name of the school is the other thing, but in Parkland, Florida. And, um, there's been, and, and I'm trying to be delicate here. Um, there has been a bizarre, uh, uh, repetitive response to mass shootings here in the U S in the last, at least 10 years, maybe a little bit longer where there's, um, every the day that it happens, it's a news sensation and everybody is caught up in, Oh my God, what's happened. And then the next day, there's uh, there's talk uh, from one side about we should we need to do something. This is insane. It keeps happening over and over again. Our gun laws are out of out of control. And on the other side, there are people offering thoughts and prayers, which has finally become sort. Of, it's not just like a few people saying, "Hey, you can't just keep offering thoughts and prayers and do not make any changes." Um. And there's a different reaction this time. Collectively, there are the, the people haven't forgotten. In, in in other incidents like this in recent last decade or so, uh, you know, like a week later, it's out of the news. Uh, not forgotten per se. Uh, not like it's nowhere. Like you can't pick up a copy of the New York Times and not find an article about the, the week ago incident on page A18 or something. Um, but it stayed on the front page this time. And I think it, I, I, I've all long held the optimistic view that that would have to happen eventually. I'm, I'm a believer in straws that break camels backs. And I understand how when you're not quite near the back breaking point, it feels like n infinite straws won't break this camel's back. Like I get it. Um, but I feel like this time we've, we've cracked something. Um, and one of the ways that uh, that this has uh, manifested itself in the public discourse is loud and sustained calls for the NRA. That's the National Rifle Association. For those of you outside the U.S., that's a, a, a gun lobbying group uh, here in the U.S. that has long pushed for um, – exactly the sort of gun laws that we have where um, they advocate 
any and all guns being available to just about any and all Americans under just about any and all circumstances. They're an incredibly successful lobbying group because it's really hard to imagine that our gun laws could be any more in the direction of, of uh, more, gun, more types of guns and more guns being available than there are. And so one of the controversies is that they run a thing called Ed, they call it NRA TV. It's an app you can get and they, they produce a lot of video. They produce TV shows. Uh, so you could go like on Apple TV and get the NRT, NRA TV app and watch NRA's television programming. Um, it's very angry. They're very angry people. If you would like to get a taste of it, I would like to suggest a segment. And I believe you, you're the, you found the link to this, Jason. Is that yeah, that's YouTube right. From, from last week tonight with John Oliver. Yeah. Right. So John Oliver, uh, the host of Last Week Tonight on HBO, which is one of my favorite television shows every week. It's great. Our, our whole family mm-hmm. looks forward to it. Our, the three of us, it might, might be number one, rivaled only by Saturday Night Live, is the show the three of us like to watch together the most. Had a terrific segment. Um about the NRA TV specifically, and they you know, did a deep dive and found a lot of footage, and it is bizarre. But I highly recommend, for your insider outside the U.S., if you want to get an insight into the mindset of this organization and the people who support them, I, I would recommend watching this video. Um, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, to say the least. So there's people calling for uh, Apple, Amazon, like with the fire, to, to, to remove these apps from the store. Uh, John Oliver's show. I don't want to spoil at all. There's so much good stuff in it, but he, <laughs> they did a segment where they were like, they put up Amazon, Apple, and Roku together, and said, you know, you got to get rid of this NRA TV. And then they cut <laughs> cut to a picture of a guy who supposedly worked at Roku, ecstatic <laughs> that Roku was put up on par with Apple and Amazon. Like, we finally made it. We've made it. <laughs> And I, it cracked me up because I happen to know that Roku probably – I don't know about outselling Amazon, but I'm 99% they, sure. They might be number one in that yeah. market, yeah. <laughs> I think they're number one in the market. It's just to show you how that market is outside the mainstream, that from the mainstream, yeah. you know, the, the perspective of the comedy writers at uh, Last Week Tonight, they're the one that's like, who the hell are they and why are they up there with Amazon and, and Apple? But anyway, people are calling for them to remove this app from the store. And uh, I don't think it's any surprise to anybody who reads my site or listens to the show that uh, I would be in favor of tightening uh, gun legislation here in the U.S. significantly. Um, I I would not consider myself an extremist in this regard. I I am not in favor of anything like uh, an outright confiscation or ban of all private gun ownership. Nowhere near that. I don't want to really get into the politics of where I think gun laws should be. Let's just say I think they should be significantly tighter and that there are certain guns that are legal today that I believe should be illegal for anyone to own. But that's my position. Um, and So therefore, I am a pretty much an opponent of the NRA politically. Um, yep. But I do not believe in uh, having groups that I'm in opposition to politically uh banned from app stores or from the web or etc i'm a, a a free speech a first amendment uh, advocate and so i have mixed feelings about this because i feel like the nra is more than just a political 
opposition group. I think that to some degree it is, and 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 here's the point where I may, maybe there are some people listening who are so far so good, and they I, what I'm about to say in the next sentence might toe the line, but I feel that it is perfectly reasonable in an unemotional sense to look at them and what they advocate and what they say in the aftermath of these events and the messages they promote on NRA TV and describe them as a death cult. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. There comes the email. Did you see that picture of the people who were actually in like the, the commitment ceremony with the bullet headbands and yes, yes carrying a, their guns and stuff. That a, was, that was super weird. A purport, I mean, John Oliver's piece is is really good because, first off, one, the thesis. I mean, again, I'm spoiling the end a little bit, but what he says is NRA TV is a kind of a curiosity in the grand scheme of things of what it, the NRA yes. does, uh, he, and he likens it to a bull or no, not a bull, a bear that is chase, that is about to attack you. It is charging you, and it's got a funny little hat. And you could talk about the hat and focus on the hat and make fun of the hat because the hat's super weird and strange and wrong. But his point is, you probably should focus on the bear, not the bear's hat, and that this is a this is a distraction to the bigger issue of the place the NRA uh, exists in American political society, where it has made any gun regulation of any kind a third rail for one of the two. Uh, major parties that controls the levers of government, and that that is the that is the bigger issue here, and not the the stuff that's on NRA TV. And I agree with that. I'm with you. I I think anything when when you like something you disagree with politically, and and you think yeah that should be banned. All you have to do is imagine the people who disagree with you politically banning your thing. Right. And it's a it's a it's not a great road to walk down. I do think if you look at those clips. There is an argument to be made. And, you know, Apple, if you look at the App Store guidelines, you could there is an argument to be made that some of the stuff that they've done lately, some of their promos, some of their videos, some of their social media posts, you could argue that it's an advocacy for violence yes that it's making threats a lot of the dana lush uh, yeah. videos where she says you know we're gonna take this country back and it's gonna be the clenched fist of justice or whatever she right. says like you could argue i think i think that would be the claim if i was trying to make the argument at apple for kicking them off of our platform right. i think that's the argument i'd make is that this has gone beyond political speech and has become um you know violence and threatening imagery and that stuff is in not only is that stuff banned in the app store guidelines but there's also this you know we know it when we see it inappropriate mm -hmm. clause that is essentially apple's out to kick anything off their platform so i could see that argument i could also see the argument that says look this is a political organization that people don't like that's fine but be unless they step over a certain line we're going to let political organizations advocate for their political beliefs on our platforms because we don't want to start picking uh, you know, winners and losers in terms of, of politics. And right. that's a, it's just a difficult line because, you know, I'm sure the KKK would like a, an Apple TV app too, and that's never going to happen. So where do you draw the line with the NRA? Um, and it, you know, I don't know, maybe it's also Apple going to some, somebody like the NRA and saying, um, this is where we're drawing the line. And some of the stuff that you've been doing is crossing the line. So you can make a decision to be, as John Oliver put it, kind of an infomercial for the gun industry. And we'll let you do that. We'll have your reality shows where people are painting pictures by shooting at buckets of paint. And it's weird. 
it's super weird, but you know, whatever. Um, and then there's, is there some place where Apple's going to draw the line and say, you're, you know, the stuff that you're putting out that crosses this line, we're not comfortable with having on our platform. And it's a tough call, I think, because you don't want to just say, we don't like their politics. So you're out. And I, I think that, uh, in my opinion, that the thing shouldn't exist. I do. I, I, I don't think that the message that they're pushing is a healthy one. And I don't think it's a sign of a healthy political viewpoint. I think it's, I, I, it's gone far beyond advocating for um, some form of personal gun ownership in the United States as a right and has entered something new. And I really do think it is cult-like and unhealthy and not even really based in reality a lot of the ways. And I think that on a lot of other issues, a group with similarly extreme viewpoints would never make it onto the app store or to fire or to Roku. Yep. But I it's, agree. but it's different and it matters that there's a large popular support for this. Not a majority. I'm not saying it's, I don't want to mistake what I mean by popular because one of the frustrations of, of being on the, we should tighten the gun laws in this country uh, side of the argument is that there, you know, depending on the exact issue and how you phrase it, it's, you know, 60 to 70% of people agree with that. It is, but the other side, that other 30% is enough that it makes a difference. And the, the, the idealistic side of this, of saying, well, this is a death cult and this is these people, you know, have terrible responses, even to these shootings, they, they should not be on Apple TV or, or Amazon's, you know, fire um i get it idealistically i i actually agree with you but you can't be an idea we don't live in an ideal world we live in a practical world and then in the practical world if apple and amazon and roku just nuked the nra tv um uh app it would create such a backlash you know what i mean it, it, it would I, I think it would be counterproductive i think it would actually draw more attention to the nra tv and it would it would add, it, it would it would further the nra's agenda than having the nra tv app in the app store yeah i um i i think i agree with you i i i wouldn't i don't think i would go so far as to call it a call it a death cult i think one of the things about the nra is that it's a lobbying group for the gun industry and their ultimate goal is to sell more guns and they are also they're trying to create lots and lots of customers who want to buy lots and lots of guns and make it, you know, and, and get their support in making it easy to sell guns. And, it, you know, the NRA used to advocate for responsible uh, gun laws and that just they turned a corner at some point and they don't do that anymore. And they've, they've taken an extreme viewpoint, which is, you know, which is fine because that is a, it's still an allowable political viewpoint to have an extreme political viewpoint, but it's a, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. I would argue I, you know, I'm a moderate person. I am for a lot more gun regulation than we have now. Um, I grew up around guns. I grew up in a rural area. Um, I don't particularly like them, and I don't have them in my home, and I don't ever want them in my home. But um, I'm I'm familiar with them, and I grew up in a home that had multiple firearms. Um, and you know, the I, I look at this and I just think think about the other being on the other side of it, because even though I don't agree with this either politically. A lot of people on the other side of the fence would say that an organization like Planned Parenthood is advocating the death of human beings because they right. have abortion services. Right. I don't agree with that. 
at all. But you start to say, well, if I can if I can turn that around and make this argument and say that Apple should ban this too, again, I don't want to get into this kind of false like, oh, does Apple, you know, what's what's right or wrong versus like, does Apple want to be the referee there? That's the question that I want to ask because I I I have opinions about which one of those arguments is good and which one of those arguments is bad, and I'm not going to make those arguments. I'm going to say, does Apple want to be the judge in that? Does Apple want to go down to that level? Because I'm pretty sure Apple doesn't want to go down there. At the same time, Apple probably doesn't want to have a lot of people furious at it because it's a channel for this stuff from the nra in the wake of all of these mass shootings that are happening in the u.s it's a it's a tough you gotta imagine can you have you thought about this there's gotta have been a conference call with roku apple amazon and youtube right like what are we gonna do about these guys well, because that, because I think one of them is not going to make the decision. I imagine that all of them are going to make unless that's collusion and they're not allowed to do that. I but know. I feel like somebody's got to be like what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> like what are what should our policy be here because um they all are facing the exact same issue which is, you know, do you allow something like this on your platform or not? And do you want to be, does it open doors for you in terms of what you've got to say? I mean, Apple does have an out. Apple literally can say, if we don't like it, we'll kick it off of our platform. But do they want to go down that route or not? No, I don't think so. And the other thing too, that I think is funny, and it's just a side point, because I think the bigger question is what should these companies do? But you including Google is to me more interesting because I suspect that the number of people who watch this stuff on Apple TV, Roku and Fire is a lot smaller than the people who run in to the NRA TV's shorter, more uh, uh, more inflammatory <sighs> videos, right viral, on YouTube, right on YouTube and on Facebook. That yeah, I mean the stuff on NRA TV. John Oliver makes it clear a lot of the stuff on NRA TV. It's kind of weird, yeah. But it's just it's it, it is like infomercial level, or it's rea- imagine a reality shows about right. shooting, right? Or about buying antique guns. They have an antiques roadshow kind of show. They've got all these, they, and it's yeah. and it's about shooting. Like that's the stuff that goes viral that really angers people is generally yeah, it's stuff that's posted on Twitter or it's posted on on their YouTube channel, right? Yeah. So, so I, I think that you've got to, that all needs to be part of the conversation too. Right. So anyway, long story short, uh, I don't think, I think Apple's doing the right thing here. And I think it's, I think it's, uh, I, I, I really think it would be helpful to the NRA if they could say, look at these companies they're they're against us too, you know, they're suppressing, they're suppressing right. our rights. Right. And I, I agree. Well, that's why I think that the John Oliver segment is so brilliant because right. not only does it kind of defang a lot of the, this NRA stuff as being, um, sort of ridiculous, like the details of what they're doing. But I think the bear analogy is pretty good, I got to say, which is the NRA, if you believe the NRA is a major problem in American society, and I think it is, I think they've gone way, way, way too far. Um, and that may be a colossal understatement, but I'm just I'm just trying to be straight here. Um, maybe worrying about whether they've got a, a, a video channel on Apple's and Amazon's uh, boxes is not what you need to be worrying about like it's not the same as even as a company offering a discount to nra members this is like they're just it's just a conduit for their videos if they turn it off their videos will be somewhere else the people who are watching it are only the people who are really deep into that stuff anyway you're probably not going to change their minds anyway like there are bigger issues here there are bigger battles to fight than worrying about this funny hat that the bear that's charging at you is wearing yep uh, so I will definitely put that uh, John Oliver 
clip in the show notes. I really encourage you to watch it. I, I, I you know, it's really well done and funny and, and makes a point really good. Um, I say we wrap it up right there. It has been a fantastic conversation. I, I don't know that I've ever had an episode of this show. This is episode 216, I believe. I don't know if I ever had an episode that stuck more closely to the notes of the episode. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty good. You do. I, I was impressed. You jumped around a little at one point, and right. then you were like, "You're right on it." But uh, it's good. Uh, everybody, Jason Snell. You can read his work on a daily basis at sixcolors.com, and you can spell colors however you think it should be spelled, and it will work uh, <laughs> within reason. Yeah, sure. Uh, and you can listen to his voice, his melodious voice, on uh, several podcasts, including Upgrade, which he mentioned with Mike Hurley and uh, occasional guests. Download. Uh, Another another show on Relay FM and uh, the Incomparable, which has uh, seventy two episodes a week. I don't know that you're yeah, on every well, one of them, but the, the the network has many many episodes. Right. The uh, the the show itself is is only weekly, fortunately for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, now I'm looking at your list. Jeez, you got even more. You're growing podcasts. You got now you got more. I'm looking TV Talk Machine with uh, Tim Goodman, uh, yeah. chief TV critic of the Hollywood Reporter, and. Lift off! Oh my God, with Stephen Hackett, that's a fort. What's fortnightly? Oh. 14, 14 every fourteen days or every fourteen, 14 nights days. is fortnightly and it's free, the, free, the, free agents, free oh. agents with David Sparks, which is also every other week. Every yeah, other I, week. when people ask me how many podcasts I do these days, I say, well, I do a lot, but I cheat because like some of them are every other week, and some of them like Robot or Not with John Syracuse, we record like fifteen of them in 90 minutes and then i just spool those out over the next half a year so it's that's cheating it's not not really a lot of work for me to do right. some of those podcasts well my thanks to you thank you for your time and my thanks once again to our three sponsors we've got casper where you can buy mattresses and squarespace where you can get a website and a way where you can get a suitcase so my idea would be to start a blog where you blog about uh, on Squarespace, where every post is about uh, putting an away suitcase under your Casper mattress bed. There you go. Combine them all three. Good. Good plan. All right. I got to go. Thank you, Jason. 